Superman Forever Radio, Episode 98, John Burns' Man of Steel, a conversation with Michael Bailey. than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, people believe tall buildings of a single bound, the incident of ship town is now the man of steel, Superman! Hello and welcome to the Superman Forever radio podcast. My name is Bob Fisher. Well, as I record this, it is getting very close. We're right around the corner. In fact, I already have my tickets to the uh, March 24th, Thursday, 6 p.m. show. It's the first uh, show here in Richmond. And uh, my little butt's going to be in one of the seats. The first showing here in Richmond. And shortly thereafter, I hope to uh, record a special episode of the Superman Forever radio podcast and talk about first impressions. So looking forward to that. That, to me, is the most exciting Superman news coming down the pike right now. Of course, there's rebirth happening, and we will get to that uh, in future episodes as we get closer to that. Uh, There's some good things happening in the world of comics. I know it's been rare since I said those words, but... Uh, some of the comics are pretty good, and we'll be talking about that in a couple of future episodes. So uh, I look forward to that, too. But today's episode is kind of special and long, so that's why I'm pretty much foregoing uh, any current events or any other segments. Because, uh, one, the length, but two, the the, the specialness <laughs> uh, of this particular episode. Special on several levels. But let's start with the with the, the beginning. I knew when I decided to host a Superman podcast that at some point when I first accepted the hosting job, in fact, before I accepted the hosting job of Superman Forever, when it was offered, I, you know, paced around for a while and thought, I don't know, I'm not good enough, all the self-doubt, everything else that comes into it. But what also was thinking was, what would I do in the show? And my head just started flooding with ideas of things I wanted to talk about. And I just started writing out lists of just general topics and how I wanted the show to go. But have a little more open format so that I could talk about whatever I wanted to talk about as long as it uh, had something to do with Superman. But pretty high on that list, I knew at some point I would have to talk about the John Byrne Reboot in 1986, the Man of Steel miniseries. Now, I say I would have to. I, that's, uh, <laughs> that is a, a choice of a word that is no longer a choice, it seems like, when I say have to talk about John Byrne's uh, Man of Steel miniseries. It's just something that I've been saying so long that now it just comes right out. But I knew that that, that would be something that I would want to talk about on this show and get those feelings out, uh, because I know that many of you either came into Superman uh, or became Superman fans, many of you, because of either the Christopher Reeve movies or the John Byrne era Superman. 
It may not have been Man of Steel. It may have been the death of Superman that got you in a, a year, a few years later. But, but many people of a certain age uh, chose that as their time to become fans, or not chose it, but time to check out Superman is when DC did the first hard reboot of Superman in 1986. Now, what do I mean by hard reboot? Until that time, and I've said this before on other shows, until that time, any changes to the character or the mythos seemed to just pretty much happen over time or happen organically uh, through the storytelling. And it would just, somebody would write a story and then somebody else would pick up on it and then it became repeated and it became part of uh, the mythos. They didn't reboot the series when they invented Krypton, for example, or Kryptonite, rather. They didn't reboot Superman when they invented the Fortress of Solitude, or Supergirl, or um, hundreds and hundreds of other things that happened uh, from the end of the Golden Age, say, 1946-ish, uh, to the beginning of the Silver Age. Um, but hundreds of things happened through the Silver Age that were just added organically, and they didn't really do a reboot. The closest thing you could even come to say that was in the Bronze Age uh, with Kryptonite Nevermore, when all the Kryptonite on Earth had turned inert. Superman was depowered slightly, but on the good side, Kryptonite was gone, so uh, he didn't have a weakness. And of course, they, they changed it. But that was done organically in the, in the thing. They didn't reboot and make a big deal of the history changing because of those changes. When Clark Kent became a reporter... Uh, a TV reporter in WGBS TV station, instead of working for the daily planet that happened in the story. And they continued that throughout uh, a lot of the bronze age, most of the bronze age, but they didn't reboot. They didn't say the stuff that happened pre that event is all gone. And we're starting over until 1986 with the John Byrne miniseries, the man of steel. That was the first time that DC decided to do a hard reboot, a retelling, a reintroduction of the Superman character. And they got John Byrne to do it. Now, I knew I was going to have to talk about that series. And I say have to again. You see how that slipped out like that? Uh, because at the time, I had been reading comics for 30 years. And uh, it was not my favorite take on The Man of Steel at first. It was not something that... Um, I enjoyed when I realized that, whoa, this is a real thing here. So anyway, I knew that if I was going to, to talk about that particular mini series, uh, I wanted it to do, I wanted to do it and talk about that mini series with someone who, uh, that Superman is quote there and quote Superman, someone who, um, Loved, loved, loves that miniseries and the Superman uh, from that era. And I knew there was only one person I really wanted to talk about the Man of Steel miniseries with. And that would be Michael Bailey. So uh, I kind of, you know, dropped a little hint online because this was, uh, you know, peeling back the curtain. This was quite some time ago. And you'll hear it in my voice, actually how excited I was at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, I'm so pumped and excited that I have Michael Bailey here. And this was recorded quite some time ago. Uh, and I had planned to get it out sooner than this. 
but you know things happen and and I've been sitting on it and but I I I wanted to take this opportunity now to um to publish it now to 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 get it out there now because I think it's an interesting conversation from a perspective from 1986 and looking at that mini series uh from a couple of different generations they were telling me my generation with Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, followed by the John Byrne miniseries, that my Superman was gone. The Superman I grew up with, the stories I grew up with, that's gone. It's over. It's history. It's in the books. They're there. You can still go back and read those books. But from this point on, we're not going to be talking about that Superman. We're talking about this Superman, this guy that we are now creating. And the John Byrne's history pretty much stood for... 25, six years. And then a um, few changes. They tried retelling the story and out of canon and that parts of became canon. And then Jeff Johns gets involved and makes some few changes here and there. But again, no major reboots until, of course, uh, the new 52. So when I decided I wanted to do The Man of Steel and talk about this on the show, like I said, there was one person I knew I needed to talk to and have on the show so that we would get two different perspectives, two ideas, two ways of looking at the same material from two different generations. And I'm just absolutely thrilled to have him here. He was here and um, we talked. And, and it's even more special because uh, last year, on his way to his high school reunion, 20th high school reunion, Michael Bailey stopped by Richmond and he and his lovely wife, Rachel, and my wife, Kim, and I, we all, we had dinner, had scarfed down some uh, uh, burgers and um, talked the night away and uh, just had a terrific time. So it's even more special that I get to meet Mike, got to meet Mike, and then to come and actually talk about... Um, his era of Superman and get the perspectives. So you're going to hear most of the conversation. You're going to hear most of it. It's pretty long. We decided that we wanted to do the entire miniseries and take it issue by issue and kind of talk about it like that. So you're going to hear it in two different parts. You're going to hear uh, issues one, two, and three here on the Superman Forever radio podcast and issues four, five, and six on Michael's views from the long box in a week or so from now. Depending on when you download this, it may already be out um, when you get around to listening to this. So parts one here, parts two over there on views from the long box with Michael Bailey. So when I dropped the hint on Facebook that I was, uh, I think I posted the pictures and said, uh, um, homework, (laughs) Uh, pictures of the covers of the six parts, and uh, Michael took the bait. So... I'm going to go ahead and we'll take a real quick break here and then we'll just join that conversation in progress. And uh, I'll be back a little later. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. 
Batman. Doctor Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International. Blah ha podcast. Coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. The history began before uh, Man of Steel uh, and before the post-crisis universe. I... I was born in 76, uh, so I was two years old when Superman the movie came out. So my childhood was the Super Friends and Christopher Reeve. Uh, the, the, there's a couple deep, dark secrets of my, of my superhero past. The first is I started out as a Batman fan. Oh. Uh, and as I have uh, said on numerous occasions, if you're really going to make the comparison by becoming going from a Batman fan to uh, a Superman fan, you're really going from Old Testament to New Testament. <laughs> uh, my good friend Steve Glosson said you're going from uh, from wrath to grace, and, and, and it's an accurate description. But uh, the very first Superman comics I ever read, though were Superman from the 30s to the 70s, which was in the school library. Uh, And I took that book out a bunch of times. And so my first exposure to Superman in the comics was, you know, 40 years worth of his books, you know, like a sampling here and there. Right. Uh, That book, I think, gets a little... at one point. That's why I think, actually, Superman from the 30s to the 80s is a better book and a better collection. Uh, But... You know, right from the beginning, I knew that there were different eras, that things changed. Uh, and E. Nelson Bridwell wrote that brilliant introduction to that book, uh, which was my first history of Superman. Mm. Uh, so it really, uh, so I, I kind of had an idea of who the character was comic book wise, but I, I didn't really get into comics until 1987 when I started picking up uh, the Superman titles because of this guy named John Byrne took it over. And uh, we're going to get into a couple little weird things about it. Uh, one of which is, <laughs> you ever watch the Golden Girls? Oh, absolutely. Okay, picture it. Mountaintop, 1986. Because uh, I like Sophia. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. There is a little 10-year-old boy that is preparing to move away from the place he's been living in in the first of the last four years. And life is about to completely change for him. And he walks into a farmer's market with his dad 
and there's a comic rack because at that point there were comic racks everywhere everywhere uh, and he walks over and this is where it could be like this dramatic moment uh, that is going to have the won't want sound at the end of it uh, walks up to a comic rack and it wasn't like a spinner rack it was like a, a sh- like a magazine shelf and I see this book and it's got Superman on the cover and I open it up and I flip through it and I go, oh, they're just telling the origin. And I put it back on the rack and I pick up Transformers number 21, which was the first comic book appearance of the aerial bots. Read man of steel number one for the first time. <laughs> it was there. It was in my hands. <laughs> And here, here's the weird part is that I remember, and I don't know if this is my memory playing with me, but I swear to God there was something on Entertainment Tonight about the revamp. Hmm. Very well I, could have been. I know he was on the Today Show mm-hmm. with Jane Pauley. Uh, for everyone out there who remembers who Jane Pauley is. <laughs> But I just have this weird memory of sitting down because my mom religiously watched Entertainment Tonight. Right. And I remember seeing on the screen, and and again, this could be my memory playing tricks with me, the page of Superman kissing Ma Kent on the head at the end of the first issue. Mm. So, But I have no proof of this. So take that with a grain of salt. But I, I think... Which is why I, I should have put two and two together. But if there is a a consistency in my life, it's except with my wife. I have never really been one to kind of get something on the uptake the first time. Right. So that's kind of my Superman origin story. Being there on the ground floor of the new thing. Yeah. So uh, I could have been there. Uh, it just happened... A little, oh, a little under a year later is when I came into it. But uh, frankly, with the move and everything, it was probably for the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably would have missed it. I, I do have. This is another one of those weird things you remember. Uh, the first winter, we we moved from Mountaintop, Pennsylvania, back to Allen, the Allentown area, and. The first winter we were there, the first snowstorm that hit, we had to run out and we had to run into the city to get some. I think we needed milk or something because we apparently <laughs> Pennsylvania at the time didn't have the law that if they announce snow, you have to go buy bread, milk, <laughs> you and have eggs. to go get bread, milk and eggs immediately yeah. <laughs> uh, and toilet paper. Well, uh, I thought that was just a southern thing. No, that, that's just a southern <laughs> thing. Oh, my God. Um, but. And kind of needed it there for a while uh, yeah. last winter. But yeah. I remember being in this convenience store. This is how my memory works. I remember being in a convenience store. And, you know, again, it's a convenience store. It's the late 80s. It's going to have comics in it. Yep. And I remember seeing that cover to Superman number two from the burn run of Lex Luthor sitting there at, at his desk. And you have the image on there. And going, oh, that looks interesting. Hey, Mike, we got to go. Okay. So there were all these moments where I think fate was trying to go, hey, now's the time. Yeah. This is it. And it really was uh, 
the other deep dark secret is that uh, my love of Superman has to do with orthodonture. Uh, because my family, my, I have three older sisters, uh, we had the sliding scale of jacked up grills. Uh, <laughs> my sister... My sister Jenny needed a little bit more. Jane needed a little bit more. And I had like this unholy terror of an overbite. And uh, because I was a kid, I couldn't stay at home when everyone would go to their appointments. It was in harness, as I like to call it. Mm. And the Dr. Ty in Allentown, don't know if he's still in practice or not. Uh, but Dr. Ty knew that he had a young clientele. Mm-hmm. Because every doctor's office has the little kids area. And they have like, you know, Highlights magazine and that one freaking toy that I never knew what it was, but it had the thing that went up and down. And I just never, it, it, was, like, it was like a freaking cl- flux capacitor sitting in the back of the doctor's office. Um, but that place was tore up from the floor up with comic books. Wow. And... I remember this again, one of those things where later in life I would realize that I had seen it. Uh, I remember reading this really interesting imaginary story and I knew what imaginary stories was were because I knew I had read, you know, Superman from the thirties to the seventies. Mm-hmm. Why is, why is Clark Kent's identity being exposed and why is Pete Ross dead? And why, uh, you know, why is Superman crying in the fortress of solitude at the end of the issue? I don't mm. want to read that. Mm. Yeah, and neither did I. They, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but there was like, now looking back on it, there was like about years worth of Superman books. Mm. Uh, and some were pre-crisis. Cause I remember the, I remember the cover of Superman as a demon, like as a monster, mm-hmm. it's a black and white cover. I think Bolland might've done it. Yeah. Uh, that was on there and Superman holding up the sword and being like the warrior of Mars or whatever it was. Uh, and there was also these other ones that had this very kind of different looking Superman. And at the end of one of the issues, uh, at the beginning of one of the issues, I'm sorry, Superboy has Superman and the Legion of superheroes, like in, in, in like a containment field. And I'm like, well, what, what is this, Mike? We got to go Oh, crud. So, <laughs> About a week or two later, I'm at the Super Fresh, which was, and right next to the ten items or less thing was a comic rack, and I saw this 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 cover of Superman holding up this giant rock guy, and he's got all these heroes around him, and I went over there and I opened it up, and I saw also that uh, cover to the book that I had been reading in Doctor Ty's office. And I realized that this one connected to that one, and that's when I decided I needed an allowance. Mm. And it was Superman number eight. Sorry, that was a really long-winded story, and I apologize. But uh. <laughs> that was perfect because those covers in the beginning were very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think better than what we're going to talk about tonight. But those first, uh, the early, the Superman volume two covers, and uh, once they got going. They they jumped off the rack at you. Mm-hmm, absolutely, you, you really knew something something had had changed. When did you finally get back and say, "Okay, now I need to"? Uh, and that's when you got. I'm not wording this properly, but is that the point where you said, "Now I need to find out 
the entire Burn series, the Man of Steel series? Um, it was a slow go. It was the summer of 1987. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 11 at that time. And I had been looking for something. I, I mean, when I was a, you know, when I was a kid, uh, and you probably had a similar thing growing up, is that, you know, like things would come in waves. Like whatever everybody was into would come in waves. So right. when I was a really, really little kid, it was Star Wars. And then G.I. Joe and Transformers start up. Mm-hmm. And you're into those, but you're into those like everyone's into them. So it's not yours you know it's 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 something that you have you have your own bits of it but um you know and i I see this in my father now watching me tv uh (laughs) he watch every show from his childhood ever i love me tv yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm finding that everybody likes this channel and i don't have it and it depresses me every saturday that's really too especially saturday (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, the um, I, I was never really into sports. I don't hate sports, but I was never into that. So I was never into baseball. I was never into collecting baseball cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and my sister Jane, uh, who's the, the closest in age to me, I mean, this is the girl that knocked out the Lord of the Rings when she was eight years old. Wow. So uh, And wore out a set of those books, literally wore it out. Wow. I was looking for something. And that summer is when I discovered comics. And it was reading those two issues of Superman that made me go, I want to get the next one. And I decided, I I made a very adult decision. I go, I'm going to collect these books. And through the course of the next year, uh, I, I had no access to a comic book shop. So it would be what was at the grocery store or at Walden Books or at 7-Eleven. And I slowly started to get into all three at the time. There were three Superman titles. And there would be like issues, like, I got Action 591. The next one I remember buying was like 594. Mm-hmm. Uh, Superman was the one that I consistently got. So from issue 8, I got 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I missed 14 and 15, but I remember picking back up with 16. The thing that I feel terrible about is when I was a little kid, I did not Superman because I didn't really like Jerry Ordway's. Whereas the adult me wants to go back in time and <laughs> give slap him. Because, uh, yeah. I love his artwork now and I've gotten to know him and he's a great guy. So I just, it's just like you stupid kid. Yeah. But that I alone said, is a very special, excuse me for interrupting, but for you to actually now have, a relationship of sorts with someone that drew Superman when you were a kid. It's a little weird that I, I don't think even if he were still alive, I don't think I could say two words to Kurt Swan other than, (laughs) Oh golly gee. Wow. You know, and I, and I'm the kind of guy I am because of my radio background and, and we sponsored a lot of concerts and stuff. I've met people from, all levels of celebrityism, but and and you know you don't get you know starstruck. I've met guys and you know where you just don't get starstruck. Scotty from Star Trek, Uhura. I met no. I have Noel Neal's autograph. Mm-hmm. Okay, but to actually have been able to sit down and talk to Kurt Swan 
Oh, my God. I think about now, Mike Carlin, who I am Facebook friends with, who has no idea who I am, of course. Um, I think about that because I have obviously comics that have both his name and Kurt Swan on them. Mm -hmm. And there is a guy who literally worked with Kurt Swan who is still there, who is very active on Facebook. But can I get up the nerve to say, oh, hi, Mike Carlin, uh," you know, or Paul Levitz, Paul Kupperberg. I mean, these guys are available to people your age who grew up with them as uh, their creators of Superman. That's very special. That's a very special thing. It is, and it's really surreal, and, and not to get too far off track, what I've found is that, especially in the, the early days of the post-crisis years, so like I would say the first 10 years of it, right? Uh, those people did something that was very unique, because other titles tried to do what they did. You know, the Batman titles would have crossovers. Right. The Spider-Man titles, especially with the Clone Saga, were def- were definitely trying to copy what Reign of the Superman had been. Right. And you 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 hear click. They you know everyone kind of wanted to do their own stories. Whereas you talk to Dan Jurgens and Jerry Ordway and John Bogdanov and Louise Simonson and 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 Mike Carlin. Uh, who Jeffrey and I have not gotten on the show yet, but we're we're gonna someday. I know we are. Yeah, um, you guys have to get him eventually. Uh, there's a couple hoops to jump through for that one. That's a little easier to get other guys, but yeah, I'll bet <laughs> that they liked working together, and that th- what they did was special. And that kind of makes the era that Jeffrey and I are covering on from Crisis to Crisis plug. Uh, that much we're realizing as I'm getting deep into the minutia of it. I mean, I know the stories backwards and forwards, right? Because uh, for years the Superman titles were the only titles I collected. Mm-hmm. So, so the stories I knew, but talking to them and how these stories were created, and some of these guys are very forthcoming uh, with things that we can't talk about on air because they have asked us not to, right? Um, but in all of that. It's just, I hear, we all came up with this. It was a team effort. You know, this person had this idea. That person had that idea. We made it all work together. And that hasn't happened. It didn't happen before, and it hasn't happened since. I'm not sure it will. I think that was uh, a very, very special event. And it happened because, like you say, almost every man and woman in that organization at that point, working on Superman, we're all driving towards the same goal, the same mm-hmm. objective. And it was so obvious when you, um, and I'm going to give both of you and Jeffrey just, just, you know, tremendous amounts of, uh, 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 kudos here because it was really through me finding your show many years ago, I actually found from crisis to crisis. I think you, had, you guys were on episode 10 or 11, Oh, when wow. I, when I first started listening to From Crisis to Crisis. And it was basically through your eyes, through you guys, that I said, you know, I need to go back and take another look at that. Because 
Um, there was parts of it that I enjoyed and in my brain, which plays tricks on you so many times, mm-hmm. there were parts of it that I thought, well, that was just stupid. And I hated that. Uh, but listening to you guys and how much, uh, that series meant to you and then putting it in perspective, because so many people will stop at the death and doomsday. They will say, Oh, the death. Oh, and it ruined death for comics and blah, 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 all this stuff. When, the death was the beginning of that story. It was not mm-hmm. the death that was as important as the year that followed the death, as what happened. That story, that event, and I hate to use the word event because it's overused to death now. Every year we're going to have these events. Every book has an event, event, event. But at that time, nothing compared to what that team of creators did. And you could literally go from one book, one title, you could go from action over to Superman volume two, over to adventures of Superman, which, well, actually you have to pull that one out. It took a while for that one. I think to get in with the rest of them, as far as the sync was going, but what they did amongst those four titles and the following year Uh, I don't think there's ever been anything like it in comic books. And I don't think it has raised as much interest at the time or since it's the go-to thing. It really resurrected the character because even though, you know, the series that we're eventually going to be talking about uh, really raised his Q value, I guess, for lack of a better term. Right. uh, in, In terms of being popular, there was a point right before the death where things were kind of shaky where sales were, you know, their, their main sales were coming from the newsstand. And in 1990, 91, the newsstand was dying. Right. So having that happen raised it. And I remember just as all that was happening was when I was getting, when I was being given an awareness that there was a larger comic book world out there, mm-hmm. that there was uh, people talking about comics beyond the 10 or 11 guys I knew in high school that were, constantly trying to get me to read image books uh that never really worked out uh i was the only i was the only superman guy and that and that followed me until i discovered the internet where every shop i was at there was like three guys we all knew uh and we all were the the guys that bought superman regularly so yeah that was about uh, me too i i was the only superman guy people were saying at your age shouldn't you be reading marvel or something real (laughs) you know but but after that he was a he was a known he was a he was something that was a kind of a big deal and it tapered off about three or four years after that right uh and they you know they would eventually do things to try to boost to sales again but no there it was it was that time where and superman's like this and it's sad uh and you know as a superman fan you you've gotta you've gotta be honest with yourself about certain things uh, you know he's the greatest guy and the greatest character and, and the best that there is in terms of superheroes. Uh, the rest of the world seems to wax and wane on that, though. Yeah, they, so, they kind of go back and forth. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you stay the course and you hold on to your collection and you keep on buying the books. Uh, yep. uh, at least that's what I do. That's what uh, I do. Even though I walked away for a br- very brief period back in 2010, but couldn't. I was, I'm like Michael Corleone and godfather three i try to go away and they pull me back in pull me back in 
<laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. Um, but it was the Brainiac. It was actually Jeff Johns' Brainiac that got me back into reading them uh, again and then saying, you know, maybe I better go back to those 2000s that I didn't get. And uh, But it was it was Jeff Johns that brought me back into where I thought, well, okay, if this is what Superman is, I'll start reading them again. And pretty much as soon as I got my subscriptions going and everything going again is when they you know, pulled him out and started that whole two years of everybody but him being in his comics. And not that the world of Krypton or War of Krypton, whatever it was called, I forgot what it was called right now, the War of Krypton. And not that it was a terrible story, but it could have been told in his own titles. They didn't have to give us, okay, we, we're not going there. Back yeah, up. I, I was about to say that because I'm about to say something and yeah. I realize that if I say that, it's going to lead to another 20 minutes of conversation. Yeah, yeah we're not going there. In fact, <laughs> I'm going to make an executive decision here and show how controlled I am of my own show and get us to the topic of tonight's episode. As we have said earlier, Mike and I are here tonight to talk about the John Byrne Man of Steel series. And Mike, if you would be so kind as to start us off by giving us a brief overview, now that we've talked a little bit about how you came into this series and started, let's just get into talking about the books and then we'll say how I came about it after we do the synopsis of uh, issue number one, John Byrne's Man of Steel. Uh, it's, it, 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 it's a really original take on it. Uh, Krypton blows up. And <laughs> Superman is launched. I'm sorry, that's really snarky. I apologize. No, we're, we're introduced to a Krypton that is very different from what had been in the comics just a month before. Uh, it's a very stark and barren landscape. And Jorel and Laura are wearing these really weird outfits, and their entire dynamic is different. the 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 planet is still going to be destroyed, uh, but Jorel is the only one that seems to care and he wants to save his only unborn son because on Krypton the babies because of this green death uh, all of the embryos have been put in these lead line cocoons, eggs essentially and he's going to launch that to Earth Laura has a huge problem with this uh, but eventually he does rocket the matrix away uh, planet goes boom uh, <laughs> We go into what I am assuming is Bob's favorite part of the book is uh, Smallville <laughs> about 17 years later where we see Clark Kent as the football hero, which seems to make everybody happy but Pa Kent, who is pissed off uh, that his son is using what we naturally assume is his his superpowers to play football. So he finally tells them of the night him and his mother... Uh, found him. Uh, the ship crash landed. It was right before this gigantic snowstorm. And they find the ship, and this is where Kal-El is born. They don't know he's an alien. They assume he's Russian. Uh, and because the snowstorm hit and they were separated from everybody for about five months, they can pass it off as their own child. So this is where Clark not only finds out that he's an alien, but he's adopted. And he realizes that Pa's right. He needs to use his powers for something different. We cut to seven years later where Martha and Jonathan, who are still alive, by the way, 
are waking up one morning and they see this newspaper headline, Mysterious Man Saves Space Plane. And they hear something upstairs. They think it's a Robert. No, it's Clark. He's there. He's upset because he was in Metropolis. He'd been kicking around the Earth for, like, came from Kung Fu for seven years. And a the plane was landing in Metropolis for Metropolis's 250th anniversary and a plane crashed into it and he was forced to go into action but it seemed to bring out the worst in people everybody wanted a piece of him so he's got to figure out a way to have a life but use his powers to help people Jonathan has an idea so he and Clark hook up uh, an insignia Martha sews up a costume inspired by the mystery men of the golden age and when there's normal things to be done, it will be Clark Kent. But when people need his very special kind of help, it will be a job for Superman. And he takes off into the air. Very nice. <laughs> I'm sensing anger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I, yeah, yeah, um, uh, let's go back to the beginning, shall we? Okay. <laughs> Krypton. This Krypton couldn't blow up fast enough. <laughs> and I should tell you how I got this. 1986 uh, was a very interesting year. And for that summer, I'm going to go on all the details, but I basically didn't get back to my comic shop. Well, I actually had a comic shop in those days. And uh, I was getting quite a few titles, enough to where the guy would hold my books for months at a time and not worry he knew i was going to be there so uh i didn't really know this was going to happen the last time the in my last group of comics that i had bought was whatever happened to the man of tomorrow and i assumed at the time not knowing because i wasn't reading any of the preliminary stuff i didn't know the significance of 423 of that story. I didn't understand it. I thought maybe it was just another imaginary tale, a what if, a whatever. And I had not been back to the comic shop for several months. By the time I got back to the comic shop to pick up my comics, as the guy was ringing them up, and I misremembered this earlier, I thought he had put all four of the Burn miniseries on top, but it was really the first four issues because it was early September when I finally got back to go get my comics. Puts the stack, he's ringing them up, and he put the four issues of The Man of Steel, this miniseries, on on the top of my stack and said, "Uh, Bob, you might want to read these first. So I read issue number one, and right off the bat, uh, I love the splash page, the first splash page that shows the thing flying towards the tower on Krypton, the red sun in the background. I thought, wow, that's really cool. Very nice. Then we go to the second page, which shows actual Kryptonians and Jarl and Lara. And I thought, well, I don't like them at all. I don't like the look of that. What happened to the nice, cool warmth and great... What? And every time I kept saying, what happened to the... what? Ha- Matrix? What the... What? What? That's... My first, it it took me almost a week after reading the first issue before I even had the nerve to read the second issue because I was upset. I was really irritated because I knew now talking to my comic guy that 
this isn't just an imagine. This is this is the new status quo. This is the new guy. This is Superman. This is what they are going to base the rest of however long. This isn't you know. He's not coming back next week. And in a lot of ways, to me, at the time, this felt, and, and even in, in retrospect a little bit, this feels a little more, um, I don't want to use the word devious, but it's it, it felt, um, I don't know what the word is. I'll use devious for the time being until I think of something better. More devious than even the new 52, because with the new 52, you got everything different. You got a younger, different looking Superman. The costume is different. The way he talks is different. Everything about the new 52 Superman was different. And they told you right up front it was going to be different. This guy looked like my Superman. But he wasn't my Superman. So in a way, it was like I'm looking at this artwork. And, and I'm thinking, well wow, I really don't like Krypton at all. They're cold, they're sterile, they're emotionless. Like you said, Jor-El seemed to be the only one that even had a hint of humanity in him. Uh, you know, I just thought, wow, I, ooh. And then we come to, uh, and I don't know, we're going to jump from the 34-year-old to the now guy reading this for the show. Did any of those feelings stick over? Am I still reading this and thinking, wow, that, wow, ooh, hate, hate, hate. Well, hate is a little too strong of the word now. Now I think of it, and we'll talk more about it, I think, as we get along uh, into this. So much of this, I just think, is is overthought, if that's a word. Or Byrne was just trying to overthink everything. Or, you know, it was like, some things he changed that didn't need to be changed. You didn't need to do this to have the kind of Superman I think they were going for. Because, I mean, probably to you guys, it didn't matter. What It didn't seem to be that big a deal with him not actually being uh, a baby put in the chamber so that he could be, quote, born in, you know, the U.S. of A., I think the whole issue, I just wanted to keep saying, okay, I get it. I get it. Superman is an American, trying to make him as human as possible. Clark's the real guy. Superman's the character he plays. I get it. You know, so the Matrix probably didn't, you didn't feel that way at all about that. Probably just. No, because when I read Man of Steel for the first time, uh, which I mistakenly thought was a four issue miniseries. So the very first comic shop i ever went to i bought the first the the very first thing i bought was the first four issues because i'm like hey i got the entire thing oh. and then i got to the end of issue four and realized i had missed two issues oh so but, we both only read the first four originally yeah. <laughs> but for me it was history um <clears throat> right what got me into it's really funny the reason why i glommed on to this version of superman was Superman number eight. You open the cover and there is a bare chested Superman, Clark Kent, sorry, a glasses on. Right. Bare chested Clark Kent with a hairy chest, which was odd. Odd. And Lana Lang is sitting in the background watching him rip a tree out of the ground. And all I knew was Superman from the thirties to the seventies. And I knew Lana was a mm. pest. So why is Lana there? And then you turn three pages later and Ma and Pa Kent are alive. Right. And that's what grabbed me was this is different. This, this is, is diff- this is not the Superman I'm used to, 
But I really like that these elements are there. So when I read all of this, and this is something that's carried me through the past, you know, like 25 years of, uh, you know, over 25 years really at this point of collecting comics, is that all of the things that, and you guys are right, this on Hey Kids and everything you said is is entirely correct. Burn has the subtlety of David Goyer in Batman Begins with <laughs> establishing his new Superman. Yeah, yeah. But to me, because of when I read it and how it's become part of of, of my Superman, uh, it it's all it's all okay. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I see this Krypton, and keep in mind, you're, the Krypton that I was more more familiar with was the one from the movies. Right. So really, when you look at that Krypton and you look at this Krypton, there's differences, but there's a lot more similarities than this Krypton and the pre-crisis Krypton. Yes, much more similar to this and the the Reeve movies than uh, the Silver Age or Bronze Age uh, fortress or Krypton. So it was just for me. It was so I didn't question it. Right. Well, it's just interesting. Recently. Yeah. Because the, the interesting thing about it for me is that obviously I started reading comics, uh, seriously in the late fifties. And during that time period, particularly as we turned into the sixties, uh, they did this whole series and it was almost like every month or every other month was either Superman on Krypton or one of his characters on Krypton. One of his cast of characters uh, would somehow interact with Krypton. They built up this incredibly lush, wonderful planet with um, forbidden forests and firefalls and crystal mountains and mountains and and uh, uh, mind reading creatures that showed you on their forehead what they were thinking about eating you and you know all these weird wonderful things were taking place and it was almost like Burns said you know I'm starting with the premise that I want my Superman to be thought of first as Clark Kent, an American citizen who becomes this character Superman. So I want him to basically choose in this issue. I want him to choose you. Are you human? Are you Kryptonian Spock? Are (laughs) you Vulcan or are you human? And uh, Byrne went out of his way for Clark to choose Earth above all. If we go through this a little bit page by page, when we get to the Smallville part, even after you, you forget the Krypton. All right, real quickly, my Krypton is basically that. I think Byrne ripped out the warmth and and uh, the stuff that had been built up to go for this kind of sterile. It wasn't like we're going to build on what came before. This was a hard reboot. Mm-hmm. And he did take some elements from what had come before. But then he tried to use, you know, what he thought would be, you know, up-to-date modern physics to justify stuff. And some of it, in hindsight, is just as ridiculous as what he was calling ridiculous, <laughs> you know, of the Silver Age. So, yeah, that's, that's the benefits of being a couple decades out and going, okay, you were, you were just as overthinking it as everybody was before you. But, yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. But and at the I time, think, it didn't seem like that. So. No, at the time, uh, it didn't seem like it was being a you know uh 
to people who were just getting into it, it was very cool. It was a, an alien planet. It was very, I understand that. But to somebody who'd been reading comics for 30 years and primarily Superman comics, and most of those were either Kurt Swan or Kurt Schaffenberger with a little Wayne Boring and Al Plastino thrown in, and then the Superboy comics, they almost literally overnight said, you know, not only are we changing direction and trying something new, everything you thought was really cool is stupid and silly, and you're an idiot for thinking that. You know, and, and, and I, and I got to blame DC more so than John Byrne for that. Yeah, me too. In hindsight, I do also. Yes. That was their kind of company line with it. And I don't think, you know, because I went through something similar later, uh, you know, in around 2006, when it was pretty much apparent the writing was on the wall that my Superman was just gone. Gone. Yeah. Um, and didn't even get, a, you know, the closest he got to a whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow was that last Doomsday story before. Technically wasn't the post-crisis Superman, but it was. Yeah. yeah. So, um, for, you know, listening to how they were talking about, you know, we're going to go back to. Mainly it was the movie. Let's be fair. It was a movie. Yeah. Uh, but I can totally understand the disenfranchisement that don't take this the wrong way that your generation felt. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I, cause I have another really good friend named Mike who went through pretty much the same thing you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're roughly the same age too. So it makes sense. Uh, and he stopped reading the Superman books for like a solid year. Yeah. And he told me a story of talking to Dick Giordano uh, about the death of Supergirl and Giordano came off as very kind of flippant about it. Like, Oh, it was stupid. So we got rid of it. Yeah. Uh, so I can totally see where, where, where everyone, where a certain segment of the fandom that had been there for the long haul suddenly felt like DC was giving, was showing them the door basically. Like, That's you know, what that felt like. It really did feel like that. And I think I'm going to spoil my lead here. I was going to save this for my summary. But uh, since we are in that point of it, uh, of this, uh, my overall thoughts on this first issue, again, as the 30 year old, I literally, you know, I've made jokes in several places that I threw it across the room. Uh, I didn't throw it across the room, but I did kind of throw it down on the table and thought, well, Superman's dead. And I felt that way after reading just issue number one of this story, then in 1980, well, September of 86, to be exact, it was September of 86 is when I read this for the first time. And I literally thought, my Superman, he's dead. Superman is dead. I don't know who this guy is. And it took weeks before I actually read the rest of what I thought was the rest of the series. Turned out there were two more on the end, uh, because I only read the first four as well. And I hated his artwork. I absolutely I can remember um, looking at this, thinking who is this giant? Or are the Ma and Paul Kent dwarfs? What is this? (laughs) What? Who is it? What is, you know, I'm just you know, it sounds snarky and pithy now, but I literally was cutting this thing to pieces then. 
Which is kind of funny because I had, you know, coming into it, that was my, I had the exact opposite reaction was, what? wow, Superman's freaking huge. Look at Huge. That. Yeah. So, yeah. look at that huge. S on his chest. Oh, the K. Here's the thing. When I was a little kid, uh, Christmas of 85, I got a bunch of superpowers figures. Uh, in fact, I'm looking at the superpowers Superman right now. And the thing that always bugged me about the Superman figure is that I always thought the cape should be longer. Now, I understand that the cape, the length of Superman's cape is, one, generational, and two, open for argument at any given time. Uh, (laughs) Right. Because there are people who think that, you know, you look at the kind of, like, early Swan or the Wayne Boring where the cape didn't go down all the way, and then there's me who just wanted that thing to flow like Todd McFarlane. Right. you know, just gushed all over it because I liked that. And that was another thing about this John Burns take on Superman that I absolutely loved is suddenly he looked like I had always wanted Superman to look. He looked not in a creepy Gary Frank sort of way, mm. but he looked like Christopher Reeve. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not arguing the point with you, obviously, because your right. perception is your perception. Right. And I, and I, one, I'm not going to take that away from you and tell you you're wrong because it, it's a matter of taste. And two, I totally know where you're coming from because I went through the same thing a couple years ago. So, well, again, it was, that's how I felt then. And I kept that in my brain and it almost became a point that if somebody even mentioned John Byrne, you know, I wouldn't say it out loud, but I would have a snarky comment of some kind in my brain again until from crisis to crisis. So we're talking when you guys was it 2005, six, 2009, 2009, you guys started that. So and it was almost then uh, before I started taking a second look, a real second look as a real Superman fan, not a Kurt Swan fan, not a boring fan, not a George Reeves fan, but a Superman fan. But finding you guys, you and Jeffrey, I thought, okay, all right, this is what I'm going to do. And I didn't have the tablet, but I said, you know, I got those issues. I've got those books and I haven't looked at them since then, literally. I had not, they were not my go-to books. If I wanted to read a comic book, I didn't say, gee, I think I'll go to 1994. It just, it just wasn't something I did. I would go back older than that, usually bronze or silver age. Cause I kind of like bronze age as much as I did the silver age really. But, um, when I started listening to from crisis to crisis, I would pull out and I'd say, oh, that's where they are. And since you guys are doing them chronologically, I could pull out a little stack of them and have your next, you know, five, six, seven shows set up before you even release them and be ready. And looking at them over again and then reading this series for the first time in a long time, the miniseries for the first time in a long time for this podcast. I'm sitting there last night. I was reading it on my tablet last night. And I must have laughed out loud or something. Oh, I know exactly when it was. I know exactly when it was. It was in this first issue when uh, Jonathan has the, story, the, the long story where he tells Clark, finally, okay, here's the ship. Okay, we don't know any, but you came in there. We found you. And Clark says, you mean I was adopted? <laughs> yeah. I laughed out loud. And then I started looking, I mean, really looking and zooming in, looking at the artwork. And I'm thinking, 
And especially uh, towards the end when he finally puts the costume on and then goes about his Superman stuff, which we'll get to in a little bit. I thought, my God, he's smiling. Oh, look at that little. Look at that. Oh, my God. So and I'll, I'll bring it right up to the front here. I have done a 160 degree turn on John Byrne's artwork. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it is amazing. Not a full 180. Not a full 180. <laughs> well, you've got to you've got to keep that little bit of of of, of bile, you know, just 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 because, a little bit. Because it's basically for many of us, Superman's like our first girlfriend that we never really broke up with. Uh-huh. Uh, and sometimes you've like stopped seeing her for a little yeah. bit. Right. Uh, but the first time she breaks your heart, you never really forget it. Yep. So I can totally see where you're coming from on that. And, 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 but for, it's funny because, you know, I'm going to have like this total different perspective than you. I don't want you to think that I'm at any point telling you you're wrong. So please don't take anything I'm going to say from now until we do this one. And then we do the second part of it. I Uh, understand. Uh, but I am not a Superman fan that likes the more fantastical elements of his world. Mm -hmm. I have a deep, and it took me years, but I have a deep appreciation for the Silver Age. And I've read a bunch of Silver Age stories. And I, you know, the, the classic ones are always going to be classic. And then you get to the ones where he is going out of his way, did this Rube Goldbergian attempt to convince Lois that he's not Superman. Those are a little harder to get through. Um, but there is this there is this breed of fan that thinks it is awesome that Clark Kent could sit in his apartment and look at Mars and count the grains of sand. Yeah. Uh, yes. and, and I get that because <laughs> Superman is pure imagination at that point. Yes, he is. Uh, and I think Grant Morrison illustrated that beautifully in All-Star Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, for my personal taste, I like Superman. It's, it's why I think I like the Golden Age Superman so much is he is the most fantastic thing in his world. Yes. Uh, It's why in 2000, when they made Metropolis the world of tomorrow, I was pissed off for about four years until Mm. they got rid of it. Right. If Superman is in a futuristic world, Superman is suddenly less special than he was if he's just if he's in the real world. So reading this first issue and I will be I will admit I'm not really super excited, no pun intended, that Clark was a football hero. Hated it. I accept it as a matter of history, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Right. But it's not something that I went, wow, that was great. Yeah, they should have made him a football hero. Right. What I appreciated about it is that Byrne used it. Uh, and, and Byrne would do this a couple different times where he would do something kind of extravagant to show why you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, you know, I could see being a Superman fan of this era of, of the previous era and opening it up. And he's not the guy sitting on the bleachers thinking I could do that, but I have to hide who I am because mm-hmm. I'm Superboy. Uh, you know, I could see where that would be a little jarring, but for me, it was always this part of his past that he learns one of the, a very valuable lesson. I mean, here's a 17 year old kid who, or an 18-year-old kid, excuse me. He was 17 when he learned to fly. 
uh, as we learn through the history. Right. Here is an 18-year-old kid that has disappointed his father. And you get the sense that that didn't happen very much because Clark looks really upset about it. Mm -hmm. And when he goes, you know, we always tried to teach you to do what's right. So you need to do what's right. And Clark's like, okay, that's it. And in that moment, he is on his way to becoming Superman. Right. He knows he has to do something and he knows he can't do it in Smallville. Now, I have since found out that Byrne wrote this, like, huge Bible for his new Superman uh, because Roger Stern used it as a source for the second Superman source book mm-hmm. that Mayfair Games released. And what I have found in, in the, from that uh, source book is that Clark actually got an early graduation. He didn't graduate with his class. He left school at the end of the football season. Really? Yeah, so he gets an early, you know. But that wasn't on the page. That's in a, a separate. Yeah, uh, that's in a separate thing. Gotcha. So, but Byrne wrote it, so uh-huh. I consider it canon. Gotcha. Understood. Understand. Didn't he also that, do a thing called uh, the ten? Uh, what were they called? The ten oh, it, deal it, it breakers or something. Of, uh, yeah, it, you know, we haven't really talked about the history of the book, right? Um, DC wanted to fix Superman for quite some time, right? Um. There were a bunch of people that turned in proposals. Uh, Howard Chaikin turned in for a proposal. Frank Miller. Of course, Carrie Bates uh, turned in one as well. And none of them... Well, okay. It really depends on who you want to believe at this point. Because <laughs> fanboy mentality is that Byrne went in there and made a bunch of... As a DC was like, oh, you do whatever you want. Byrne's like, they tell me to... Start from the beginning. I mm. wanted to work within the continuity. They told me to start over. Who are you going to believe? Yeah. Who cares? Wouldn't that be but, interesting, though, to see what Byrne would have done within continuity at that point? I mean, there was, there was one idea. I think it was Marv Wolfman's, uh, if I'm correct, and I could be wrong on this, that basically his one of the ideas to revamp him was at the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Earth 2 Superman, you know, Superman dies. Right. Like the Earth 1 Superman just dies. Straight right. up dies. And, any monitor to Superman goes, well, you know, I wasn't really gray headed and I'm really young. Uh, I just wore makeup. So I'm going to go be Superman now. Yeah, so he, he faked his aging. So Lois wouldn't be upset as she aged. Apparently, I guess. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, mm. But burn when he approached the character. Yeah, there was a certain sense. Cause I've read a couple of interviews uh, with him both right before the series came out and when it was announced he was going to be doing it, that he was just like, oh, there's like stupid stuff. And to be fair, the one thing he really cites, I can't argue with, super hypnotism making Clark Kent, making everybody believe that he looks different from... Mm. Yeah, bad idea. Yeah, not Marty Pasco's best efforts as a Superman writer. No, no. Fun story, don't get me wrong. Yes. But... um, so he wanted to get rid of stuff like that. And he can't, he had his list of 10 unreasonable demands. Uh, one of them was no Superboy, uh, because according to Byrne, he was going to get to do a Superman learning the ropes and DC reneged on that as soon as the contracts were signed. Mm. Mm. So, and he has since said that he would like to have done Superboy because he wanted to explore Superman learning the ropes. 
Yeah, you see, um, there's another thing I think then that Byrne gets blamed for uh, that maybe DC said, no, we, we're just as happy that Superboy go away. Yeah, and I mean, because they were happy that Supergirl went away, so... Mm-hmm. That that to me was a real surprise. I didn't know what was going on in DC, but but anyway, that's another rabbit hole. But go ahead. But uh, and of all of the things that he came up with, and I'm really upset because about 12 years ago, I emailed John Byrne when you could do such a thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I asked him what they were, and he sent them back to me, and I've I had them in the my files, and they're gone. Uh, but the one that he that they told him no on. Mm-hmm was he wanted Laura to come to Earth, give birth, and then die. And that's how we figure out that Krypton is wow. is a thing. And DC's like, no. No, we don't like that. No, and, and on one hand, you know, if you're if you're looking at it from a pure, purely dramatic level and you're not as heavily invested into the lore, mm-hmm. that's that's an interesting idea. It's an interesting idea for an Elseworld story. Yeah. It's just not something you should ever do. So. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, that was the only demand that they said no. It's interesting. Because um, uh, briefly, I think one of those, if you start with the first one, no Superboy, I think what they really did when you kind of boil it down is they got rid of Superboy, but kept the Kents alive. So mm-hmm. that you get a lot of what would have happened in a Superboy title happening in Smallville with him as a younger person, mm-hmm. they put that in the main title when periodically he would go back to Smallville and have relationships or get a new cape or whatever. It's <laughs> it's a way they kept that in. And I have a snarky comment about the cape, uh, too. <laughs> uh, so to me, that was one of the things they kind of swapped. They said, okay, we can't, we're not going to do Superboy, but we're going to keep the Kents alive. So you can still have a lot of that earth uh, the foundation of why did Clark Kent become Superman and how he became Superman. And I agree that having a quote Superboy, which is, which are stories based on Superman when he was a boy, particularly those episodes or those issues that would have him in a full Superman costume with an S on the chest and the whole thing raises other complicated problems that in the silver age, we just basically overlooked, okay? Mm-hmm. We, we just said, fine, that can happen. It can happen. <laughs> Who was that? Who was that actor, that comedian used to do that? It can happen. Judy Tenuta. There yes. we go. There we go. Oh, wow. Yeah. Woo, pulled that one out. But yeah, um, in the Silver Age, and I think it was because literally, uh, if you went to the convenience store, the 7-Eleven, the whatever, the grocery store, and you bought a few comics off the rack, Justice League, Green Lantern, Flash, whatever, and Superman action, and you're reading a Superman comic, and let's say it was the old days, it's got 32 pages, it's got three complete Superman stories in it, one of those stories will be probably a red kryptonite story that contradicts the other two stories entirely. And they're both <laughs> considered canon. And you just move on to the next story and say, wow, that was good or bad or fun or not. And you just move on. You don't worry about it unless you read the letter columns and somebody says, in issue 117, you sh- clearly show Superman using heat vision, blah, blah, blah. And um, I love those. But continuity wasn't one of those things that we were going to lose sleep over. You know what I'm saying? It, was, yeah. uh, it, it, it didn't really matter. And 
that changed because baby boomers, love us or hate us, baby boomers got in charge of the comics industry. They became, the guys that you like so much who wrote this stuff were not of your age. They were my age and a little younger, but basically my my generation were writing these stories. And what happened is that as, and it's weird, you can almost trace it. As I became a, a late teenager in the late 60s, comics started to change. Continuity started to matter. Characters started to grow. And things that happened in this comic made a difference. And they tried to keep track of that. And so as we leave the Silver Age and get into the Bronze Age, continuity is starting to take place. And in weird places, we're seeing it early on in the mid, in the early 60s, actually, in the Supergirl stories of action comics, where they would literally go on for four, five, six, seven issues, one storyline. That was unheard of in those days. And uh, so it's my generation that really started this. And comics started to appeal, I think, to older demographics as baby boomers aged. But then when we got to 30s, guess when that was? Right in the mid 80s, as we're all starting to get into our 30s. That's kind of where we still are today. Comics are now still written for that age group, regardless Mm -hmm. of what you say. What not you personally, but what people say uh, out there. Screw you, Bailey. <laughs> yeah, screw you, Bailey. But uh, uh, the collective you. Uh, comics are written for basically thirty-year-olds and people who can keep long stories into their brain, and uh, uh, that's partially good, partially bad. The stories are more sophisticated on some level. There's a lot of different things. But in these days, in those days, so I don't know where I was going with that long tirade about the 30s, except that uh, when I got to reading this, and even before this happened, we knew there were changes happening, but they all seemed gradual until this, and this totally changed everything. So those 10 things that Byrne did, which got me into this rabbit hole, exchanging Superman for the Kent still being alive, which brings back the, um, the Smallville connection. Uh, see, I don't really have a real problem with the Kents being alive. Uh, I know some of my peers aren't crazy about the Kents being alive and didn't like it on Lois and Clark either. And I, I'm kind of of two worlds about it. And I don't think uh, Byrne answered that in, his, in this miniseries. When we talk about the football thing, for example, that took place when he was basically 17. Mm -hmm. You're not a kid at 17. Yes, you're still young. You still have kid-like stuff, okay? But at 17, there's a lot going on that I think they should have had these conversations much earlier. To me, that's what I liked about what finally settled down as being the, quote, Silver Age was somewhere around puberty, the power started to really kick in where he wasn't just doing, you know, little zaps of heat vision here and there. And again, we're, uh, 
when I say it settled in in the Silver Age, probably more towards the late Silver and early Bronze, because in the early Silver Age, super baby, practically a toddler, had his complete power set and could fly off in space and have adventures with Brainiac. Talk about things that are rough to read. Yeah, they're they're a little tough. You have to have a complete, total different mindset for those. Yeah, you got you got to go into that, and you can't read a bunch of once. I found no, I, no, 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 me, no. Me personally, it's like I can read. And I'm good for another, like, six months. Yeah, I'm pretty good, too, with uh, a little bit of Super Baby here and there as a comic relief. But uh, if they ever put out the best Super Baby stories ever told, you know, anthology with 20 stories, do not sit down and read that sucker all at one time. You're going to want to shoot yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but we go to the other end of the spectrum here with Byrne, where he has delayed all of that happening. He has put off till the very last possibility Clark knowing anything about who he is, where he came from, and why am I able to be a superstar football player. He should never have been a football player. Uh, I think Morrison, actually, I think it was Grant Morrison in, in the New 52 reboot, handled that better than I think Byrne did. Anyway, when the New 52 started, they, Clark didn't play, quote, organized football with school as a teenager, as a young person, maybe 10, 11, 12, a little hard to tell because the artwork he changed, he looked in one panel a lot older. And, 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 Rags Morales was extremely uneven with his artwork. Okay, so, so it was probably Rags then because, because yeah, because during that story, it was a good story, but you're right. In one panel, he looked 14, and in another panel, he was 10. It was just all over the place. But I thought they handled this really well in that they were playing Sandlot football, just a bunch of kids out like we all did as kids. You're just throwing a football around, you pick, do a pickup game. Nobody's got equipment on, it's not organized. Clark goes in and tackles Pete Ross and just Oh, you're thinking of Secret Origin. Is that what I'm thinking? Where he's just Johns and Gary Frank, yeah, it was And he just uh, pulverizes his arm or something. Yeah, he breaks his arm and it was hinted at in like an annual, like Action Comics annual number 10, which was like 2007. Okay. And then when they finally pulled the trigger and started doing Secret Origin, uh, they, they kind of dealt with that a little more. Okay. And, and that was Johns, who was, uh, it was very much enamored of the movies. Um, so Okay. Well, that's where it comes from. So I like Jeff Johns. That, that makes more sense then. But um, I thought they handled it better there. To me, by the time he's at this point where he's scoring touchdowns and winning football games for his senior football team, okay? To get to the senior football team, he didn't just walk on as a 17-year-old. He probably played early on organized school football, played on JV until powers start to kick in and they make him a star and put him up there earlier because you're saying that he didn't even finish his senior year. Mm -hmm. He graduated earlier, so... Uh, he still had to play football probably more than just the one game they show us. To me, Byrne used the, the thing. Jonathan's speech, the look, everything you said about it is on the money. Absolutely perfect. And, and, and um, uh, uh, Byrne, John Byrne, shows that so well in the faces I'll give him credit for that. That's a good thing I loved about Swan. You didn't need to see their whole body. He could do headshots, and you knew exactly what was going on on their minds. And I think Byrne had a lot of that, too, in this, where 
you could just look at the pages. You didn't have to read the dialogue, but you see Clark Kent playing football all happy. You see Jonathan's body language talking to the coach, and then you see Clark and Jonathan talking to each other. You don't have to read the 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 text to know what's going on on those pages. And I think that was handled. Uh, and that's another thing that kind of surprised me a little bit. And I'll tell you why I went 160 on John Byrne. There's a difference in being a great poster artist, an artist who can draw these gorgeous posters you want to hang on the wall that are in great poses of rain and superheroes or bat signals in the sky on gargoyles and looking great. And there's another kind of an artist that can tell a story through panels of images. And Byrne can do that. He did it so well in this. Oops, I'm giving away that I liked it better than I should. But (laughs) (laughs) it was it was refreshing to really zoom in on this and look at some of his faces and what he does. Uh, You don't have to see Superman's costume to know that's Clark Kent. That's Superman. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen that with Ramita Jr. yet. Well, and here's the other thing that I thought you would probably have appreciated, too, is if you look at his Clark Kent, his Clark Kent is George Reed. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Slicks the hair back, thick horn-rimmed glasses. The only part of the burn Clark Kent I really don't like is, is the fact that I think he's a little too casual in showing off his muscles, wearing the tight clothing, uh, I don't mind the George Reeves attitude. Uh, that's one of the things I, I, that I had a problem with in the Christopher Reeve version of Superman. So I thought his Clark Kent was a little too comedic, a little too goofy, a little too stupid. Whereas uh, George Reeves, there is a definite difference. I know people all argue with people till the cows come home. They say that George Reeves, Superman, and Clark Kent was the same guy. No, they weren't. They are different. But he didn't go out of his way to be a clumsy, scared, um, uh, and John Byrne brought that back. And I, I agree with you. I thought reading this, I like this Clark Kent, but, and we'll get into this into the next issue, he needs, I thought he still needed to back off a little bit with the walking around without the shirt or wearing the skin tight clothes that he wears all the time. It's one thing for Clark to be in good shape, but it's another thing. I mean, you're walking a thin line anyway with slick back hair and glasses, you know? Yeah, it's it, it's the thing that when, when I got into, and, and I held on to this for years, is I boiled down the differences between the pre-crisis and the post-crisis Superman. You know, it's really that flip of the switch of, in the pre-crisis era, it was like Superman was the real person and Clark Kent was his disguise. Um, I don't agree with uh, Quentin Tarantino's whole speech in Kill Bill Volume 2 that Clark Kent was his commentary on humanity. I think that's a bunch of crap. Yeah, I agree. Um, but, you know, Clark Kent, as much as he was a person, as much as he was friends, he wasn't what Superman thought of himself as. He probably more thought of himself as Kal-El. In the Silver Age? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the post-crisis, it was, it's like him and Batman switch places, where suddenly Clark Kent was the real guy, and Superman was the fancy pair of Long Johns, as we'll be discussing in, you know, when we get finally get to issue six. Right. 
And I think Lois and Clark nailed it in season two and perfectly summed up this Superman is Dean Kane looks at Lois and goes, Superman is what I can do. Clark Kent is who I am. Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with that. I know a lot of my, my generation does have a real problem with that, but I think it's weird. I never saw him as any one of them pretending to be the other one. I know that's weird to say, I always saw all three of them as the real guy. And I know that's kind of weird, but, you know, it seemed to me that in, in the pre-crisis era, when there was a thought bubble over top, which I pretty much have gotten rid of now, there's no such thing as a thought bubble anymore. But the thought bubble, whether it came from Clark or Superman, uh, that always seemed to be the real guy. But to me, I always put it that the real guy is the guy that could sit around the kitchen table with Ma and Pa. Kent, that's the real guy. Now, is that Clark Kent? Uh, because Clark Kent is different. That guy is different when he's with Ma and Pa than he is with Lois Lane or Perry White, even if he's Clark Kent in both of those places. There is a time when he lets it down and he's not really pretending to be weaker than Superman. He's not pretending to be Superman who can move planets. And he's not pretending to be an alien. There, Who is that guy? So I know it's kind of weird to think that I always thought of all three of them as being the original guy, the real guy. Uh, because when he was being Superman, I don't think he was pretending. I don't think he, you know, uh, in the pre-crisis when something would happen and he'd go into the cloakroom and, you know, do the great shirt rip this is a job for superman i don't think he was now pretending to be superman i think he was superman so the funny thing is is that another reason that i was so attracted to this version of superman was it it lined up with what i thought the dynamic of clark kent superman should be um my first real exposure to who Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and all them are, uh, more so than Superman the movie, which I love, uh, I watched Superman 2 and Superman 3 as a kid more than I watched Superman the movie. Mm-hmm. I've seen that film a thousand times. Um, <laughs> and when you look at Clark and Superman the movie and then see uh, when Donner was gone and how Clark and even in four significantly changed. I mean, yeah, he was a little bumbling, but him and Lois were friends. Yes. They they had a relationship and especially Superman three, you're really seeing Superman have kind of a crisis, an identity crisis almost. It's my favorite, actually Clark Kent, Christopher Reeve, Clark Kent. Because yeah, he's kind three. of a nerd, even though he's towering over Brad Wilson. I don't yeah. know how that ever. <laughs> yeah, how uh, they let that happen? Yeah, that scene where where he takes the bowling ball from him. I'm like Clark, just stand over him. He'll yeah. back off. But um, <laughs> but that whole thing with Lana loved Clark. Mm-hmm. She loved that part of him. She liked Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, but she loved Clark. So that kind of it never seemed that way in the comics until Byrne came on. Right, right. And so it, it's really funny how, you know, sometimes you get the version of the character that you really want. And the only problem I have with his backstory is being a football player. But again, I just accept it because 
while they said, yeah, he's a football player. Look at the pictures. He was a football player. But we never actually see him trying out for the team. Right. We never see him, you know, we see him in that one game. It's not like Smallville, which I think handled it pretty fairly as well mm-hmm. in the fourth season where he finally gets to play football. Right. And that's when he's just like, no, nope, can't do it. It's yeah. it's a bad idea because Jeff Johns uses his powers uh, <laughs> inappropriately. So... I can't use mine. But still, Martha and Jonathan being alive, though, I think was one of the things I love about this era the most is because there is a theory out there, and and I understand it, that them dying is the lesson Clark needs to learn that his powers can't save everybody. Okay, that's a note I have that I was going to get to that, yeah. Um, if you want to go into your thoughts on it first, uh, well, my only thought is, is that exactly that common? Exactly. That there, there is an excellent story in the pre-crisis era, uh, where, uh, Superboy finally leaves Smallville and the Kents die when the Kents die. They both get sick. Ma and Pa get sick. And I want to go into the whole story, but Ma and Pa get sick. Ma actually dies first. And on his deathbed before he dies, there's this great talk between Jonathan and Clark. And they did it again in in Superman the movie, I thought was handled fairly well. Because I think the thing that the Kents dying does, that Byrne didn't put in this miniseries that I was surprised, is that it does just that point. It shows that in spite of the great powers he has, it's a life lesson. He can't save everybody. And he can't do it all. I had wished that after reading it for the for the show here again and in the series, I had wished that there had been something like that in the series, because I don't mind the Kents being alive. I mean, you know, I'm not one of the Silver Age guys that say, nope, nope. In the real story, boom, they were dead. End of discussion. Well, go back further. If you want to go back to the Golden Age, they never even existed for crying out loud. (laughs) So, you know, let's let's get real here. You pick and choose. Right. It's the problem when you actually study the history of a character as you start seeing the cracks in people's logic. Yeah, exactly. You know, oh, damn that facts again. There comes knowledge and truth and facts again getting in the way of my. But um, so I can go either way. I, I appreciate because there are some times and what some writers have done with the fact that the Kents are still alive uh, have just been some of the best post-crisis stories ever written. Uh, that deal with how Superman interacts with Jonathan and Martha as an adult. And even in this issue, this this first issue, I think one of the most poignant parts of this story is as Clark Kent, when he saves the shuttle, uh, the space plane, which should have been a shuttle, which was a shuttle originally. Did yep. we did we say that already? No, it was, uh, it was supposed to be a space shuttle, but when John Byrne was... Uh doing the final prep on it in January of 1986, the Challenger exploded on January 28th, 1986. Yeah. So, uh, and they considered it to be a little insensitive to have a shuttle being in danger. So they turned it into that ugly ass looking space plane. Yeah. That's my problem. I don't have a problem with them changing it from the shuttle, but boy, somebody should have drawn a better ship of some kind. It's really yeah. ugly ship. But it's not really on, what is it, three panels and it's gone, but still. Uh, But that scene, he saves that ship as Clark Kent, not as Superman. Well, he wasn't like slick back hair glasses. There there was no costume. It was early. It was traveling around the world or whatever and saves it. But the poignant part of that story 
is, as you mentioned in your synopsis, there's a noise upstairs. The Kents go into Clark. There's Clark sitting there. But that scene, that that panel of Clark sitting kind of in the dark in the shadows saying they wanted a piece of me. They all they wanted me. They I forgot the exact words, but you could feel it. You knew that what he wanted to do now he's afraid to do. He can't do it anymore. And you felt that not only in those three or four words he said, but in the way Byrne drew that scene of him sitting in that chair. The closest thing that I can even think of that comes close to that, uh, there's an Alex Ross image of of Mm -hmm. Superman sitting back in a chair with his shirt open, the glasses are still on, but hair's messed up, the lamp is tiny, and you're just thinking, what could he possibly be thinking and when I saw this scene uh, yesterday or day before when I was rereading this, um, that Alex Ross entered my mind again. But the the weight, the absolute weight of what he had just experienced, the most incredible feeling of his life, saving all of these people and within minutes being basically attacked and 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 swamped by those very people and the other people who wanted a piece of him. Uh, to me, that was an incredible, really, really incredible scene here that summed up, um, well, I think it just sums up a lot of Superman and this era perfectly for the kind of Superman that John Byrne wanted to, uh, uh, wanted to create. And I know I'm coming from it and I'm not supposed to like this. Okay. (laughs) But... If you're reading this thing and then you see what how Jonathan and Martha handle this and how the three of them handled this as a family of him saying, I really have these powers. I want to use them. I want to do this, but I can't if that's what's going to happen all the time. I can't do it. And them as a family coming up with a solution they did. And I've got some nitpicks. I could pick you know, an iron on S that didn't mean anything, you know, uh, you know, I got some nitpicks here and there. And it's nice that even in Smallville, Martha Kent uh, apparently had subscriptions to every newspaper in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, Mm. (laughs) that's a little weird. I mean, maybe there's like this whole, there's like this weird newsstand in Smallville that gets out of town papers. But it's a sweet scene. That was a terrific, scene it's it's a mother proud of her child exactly see for me this this is going to sound harsher than it really is but my 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 feeling is is that if you're hardcore about the fact that the kents need to die that's a little cruel to your favorite character (laughs) because what you're what you're saying is that he needs to lose two of the most important people in his life now theoretically uh, even though it was a an emotional thing, and there would be many moments in the Bronze Age where he'd just go back home and sit in the Kent house, right, and and kind of sulk a little bit. And I always felt I feel for him in those stories, right. But um, the I understand that lesson. The thing is, is that you can teach that lesson with other characters. Yes, uh, and they do and, later. They do not in this series, but in well, other issues, they do teach that lesson. Yeah, Jurgens kind of taught a, a did a drunk driving story that was uh, really powerful around 1990 91, and uh, Jeff Loeb 
uh, right after his son died, wrote a very powerful story mm. where Clark had this friend named Sam. Sam died of cancer, and he couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. And, you know, but what you're also mitigating is that Clark needed that final lesson to become Superman. And I'm like, I don't know if I quite buy that, you know? I don't know if, you know, doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do should not come with a set of dead parents. Right. See, I and that's where I agree with you. I don't think they needed to die because they had already instilled that ethic. He had that in him, whether they lived or died. Mm-hmm. And even if you go to the pre-crisis, Jonathan and Martha had already taught him. Now, if, even if you don't like Superboy, that's kind of why. And, and John Wilson mentioned this in our discussion when I said that that's what I liked about Superboy <clears throat> was that the life lessons uh, he can be learned or can be taught they could use superboy for that if you mm-hmm. know that shows you why superman is the man he is today you got those lessons in superboy well john wilson who actually has been reading them a little more recently than i had uh remembered that a lot of times the kents were used as foils of some kind and were very st- stereotypical um parents of that age group you know, particularly in Superboy, when he was supposed to take place, these stories took place in the 30s and 40s. Then, then, um, so a lot of times they would be saying something stupid in Superboy or Lana or Pete Ross. They would learn the life lessons in spite of the adults <laughs> or the kids, not because of. Yeah, uh, I, I think it was really a lot of the later the, the Superboy story, the pre-crisis Superboy stories that I'm more familiar with. Right. That you you kind of see Carrie Bates was really good about that in the New Adventures of Superboy. I love Carrie Bates. I mean, uh, he catches some crap from some circles, but I like Carrie Bates. But uh, you know, I just fell in love with this idea of them being alive and Clark being able to go home and having. Having this anchor, you mm-hmm. know, something that further makes him human. And, you know, I was going on before that that I'm, I'm the type of guy that likes a more grounded Superman. Um, I'm not saying that's the only way you can do it. It's how I prefer it. Right. Uh, if I, you know, Superman fighting gangsters, some people are like, why? powers in that. Shut up. I like Superman fighting gangsters. Right. Um, right. You know, and, and it's really it, it come, it, it's no and we've talked about this before on other shows that my favorite season of the Adventures of Superman George Reeves series is the first one. First because, one. Yeah. Because it's the one where he's more rough and tumble. Yeah. And that was the thing is you don't get that here because, you know, in the first issue, it's really just setting up Superman. Right. Uh, so you don't get to see him in Metropolis except for saving, you know, you get a glimpse of Lois Lane, but you haven't met the rest of the cast yet. Right. Um, you know, it, it's more of just setting it up, you know, this is a job for Superman. And that final page is brilliant because Isn't this it? is just full shot of him and all his glory yeah. with, uh, you know, Mom, Pa on the porch, you know, looking all prideful and the shadowy figure in the barn and the shadowy figure in the barn uh, who was there earlier in the issue because uh, when Clark approaches the ship, he becomes weakened because and this was something else. Burn Burn wanted to get rid of Krypton being plentiful. Mm-hmm. So for 
a good decade, there was one chunk of Kryptonite, and that was it. Yeah, until... I like I like and dislike that both. I'm I'm of two minds on that too. But go ahead. <laughs> You kind of like it that it's raining down on Earth, like you know, you know, like 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 you know your average meteorites. But it's, it's also for me and for this era, it made kryptonite special. It made it a right. unique weapon. Well, I, it needed to be, and it's part of the thing again. I think that that uh, I like and dislike about the burn thing. It needed a reboot, and I'll agree. After at the time, I didn't think so, but now this is the old me. This is me now. Current <laughs> current time. The 1980s Superman needed a kick in the butt. I agree. I agree. Um, and I liked the idea that they made Green Kryptonite special again. I agree. I love that. But on the other hand, the kid in me says some of my favorite all-time fun issues of Superman were the Red Kryptonite stories where it just turned him into some weird thing and he had to figure out how to deal with it for 48 hours. Um and I think that if when they were going to modernize it, and Smallville handled this, I think uh, did a decent job a little bit trying to use multiple types of kryptonite. But I think red kryptonite in modern hands, there are some wonderful stories that could be told with that if they choose to ever bring it back again. Because... Um, uh, I love those kind of because again I'm of two minds. I'm the kind of guy that likes a Superman who can stop a bank robber, get a cat out of a tree, do mundane stuff, but then fly off into space and save an alien spaceship that Earth doesn't even know has to exist anywhere. You know, so I like both elements of Superman, and I think that's why. Uh, I really loved the mid-60s so much because of a writer named Edmund Hamilton mm -hmm. who just wrote these wonderful science fiction stories that, oh, by the way, featured my favorite character. Uh, and also could be then – or could also follow up with, you know, in the back just some nice little story of something happening here on Earth. I think that is the good Superman. I don't think there are divisions. I don't think there is a uh, a planet-juggling Superman who can fly through the time barrier under his own willpower with pinpoint accuracy and a guy who can, you know – barely uh, stop a building from falling over because he doesn't have the strength to do it. It takes all of his strength to catch an airplane, for example. I can keep both of those supermen in my head at the same time and enjoy them both for what they are. And I want to see a little more of that. So when, when Byrne did this and said there was only, and we followed through, and now there's only this one chunk of kryptonite, I had no real problem with that in the reboot because to me that harkened back to the George Reeves show. Mm -hmm. There was only one piece of kryptonite in that entire series, and it wasn't even real kryptonite. It was synthetic kryptonite. The guy made uh, a bullet out of the only real piece of kryptonite to find out which bullet, which metal out of space would actually hurt Superman. And when he saw the film and realized uh, it's from an episode called Shot in the Dark, by the way, George Reeves' second season, black and white, still some good episodes in that particular Second season. But that was the only piece. So the scientist creates, based on that, a piece of synthetic kryptonite. 
And they brought that back for several episodes or, of, of the George Reeves show. But in that whole thing, it was only one piece of kryptonite. But in the 60s, it had gotten so bad. And I don't want to use the word bad. It had gotten so plentiful, plentiful. Kryptonite was everywhere and practically everybody had a piece of it. And uh, there's even a, uh, an action comics uh, issue where <laughs> Jimmy Olsen, God love Jimmy Olsen, uh, sorry, Emily, I like Jimmy. Um, <laughs> but uh, Jimmy on the cover is taking a picture of his Superman trophies, and he has all of the different kryptonites on his shelf, and he's taking pictures of them, and Superman is standing next to them. Because he wants a picture of Superman standing next to all of the different types of kryptonite for his kryptonite story in the Daily Planet. <laughs> so not only are these the weaknesses of kryptonite uh, of Superman, but we're going to tell you how they affect him. Well, that was kind of one of the things in uh, in Superman the movie that you know Lois Lane blabs that he can't see through lead. Yep, he can't see through lead, and kryptonite will destroy him. Are we going to Addis Ababa, Mr. Luthor? <laughs> <laughs> Looks like a banoose. <laughs> oh, you got to love and hate it at the same time, don't you? Uh, not hate. Hate's too strong. Hate is way too strong. So uh, basically, I guess let's summarize issue one because we need to get to issues two and three. Yes. But to summarize issue one, there are parts of it that I still don't like. I still don't like his Krypton. I think it's sterile. Uh, I think there are way more stories to be told about the pre-crisis and Silver Age Superman or Krypton than this one. Although in the 90s, some of the other writers did some really fun things with this Krypton mm -hmm. based on this Krypton. So uh, I guess we could say, depending on the writer... This Krypton left me cold. I didn't like it at all. I didn't like it at the time. No, I hated it at the time, the Matrix. Okay? That him being born uh, in the U.S. At the time, hated it. I mean, hated it. I think it was the thing that jumped out at me the most out of issue number one is that uh, he was not a baby on Krypton anymore. Uh, he, you know, it was this matrix thing. And I will add to that, this, this, this last thought on, on the matrix bit. When you are, I can't imagine a mother who has basically given birth to her child, to a baby, actually given birth to a flesh and blood little being, something she has now held in her hands something she has nurtured forever how long whether it was like in man of steel for a few days practically or in the silver age until he was basically a toddler laura had a baby for that mother to then say i'm going to put my offspring into this rocket and blast it off of this planet the emotional toll that had to have taken on her, the thoughts, whether she loved and trusted Jor-El or knew that he was right or not, 
There is a difference putting in to that rocket ship your child than putting in to it a matrix that you've not touched, felt, you know. Her emotion in this, and I think it was genuine, and I think Byrne showed the emotion, but Lara's emotion in this was not necessarily for the life or for the fact that she's losing her child. It was the fact that a Kryptonian was going to grow up on a planet of savages. Yeah. The, the thing taking a child away from its mother, to me that is an emotional thing that was totally left out of this because he didn't want emotion on Krypton. So in a way, she's putting in, you know, what is she putting in? Part of her DNA that was all sterile and not... And that's what I loved about both The Man of Steel and Grant Morrison's retake on on the origin story in both of those. And I think man of steel did this beautifully. Anybody who sat through that movie of man of steel, the most recent man of steel is what I'm talking about and watched Laura lose her husband and shoot this rocket off and then witness the end of Krypton had to feel what she was going through. And there are several stories in the Silver Age where they're, they're, the origin is partially told from Laura's point of view. And even in the George Reeves show at the end, when it's decided that only the baby will go into the rocket, the emotion of the mother giving away her only and first child is, is heart-wrenching. It's... it's uh, you know, uh, I don't even know how far to go with. It. I mean, that's something that I think was missing in this. Byrne could have told the exact same story, but kept the emotion of Krypton in it. So I think that was my biggest complaint is that we lose that kind of emotional contact to Krypton. And we'll talk again Krypton uh, later, but uh, uh, that was my real, real problem with this whole first issue was the real Krypton stuff. Most of the Smallville stuff, including the football thing, I don't like. I think should have taken place when he was 12, not 17. But it was told in a way and then drawn in a way where you still felt the emotions of the Kents and Clark's turmoil. Um, But I really don't like the way that Byrne just wanted to build up Superman and his earthiness at the expense of tearing apart Krypton, not just letting it blow up, but making it a place that we really didn't care for that much. I didn't. I didn't really care for this Krypton that much. So that's my summary of the first one. So how do you feel now, 30 years later? Um, outside of the football thing being kind of a sticking point, I, I still really like how this story goes. Uh I, having been raised on Superman the movie being my main exposure to Krypton, Mm -hmm. and it going away, you know, like 30 minutes into the film. Right. uh, I didn't have a connection to it to begin with, so when I read this, I'm like, ah, it's okay. You know, let's get, you know, let's, let's get to, let's get to the Earth. Let's get to Superman. Right. Um, I like the, of this Krypton, and Byrne would explore it and writers down the road would add little flourishes to it, but they would keep, pretty much keep this this, this basic template in place. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so I see everything you're saying on that. It's just for me, it 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 it, it just. I'm like Bill Murray at the end of Hot Dog the movie. It just doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, um, it's like our friend Annie Leland says. Krypton has basically <laughs> one purpose. That's to blow up. So I mean, I I like reading those old Krypton. You know, like World of Krypton stories. I mean, it's it's fascinating to see right. the science fiction elements being brought into it, but it's not my bread and butter. This gotcha. is mm-hmm. um, for man that doesn't have an inherent sense of I am going to do the right thing. Right. That he kind of learns it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know in talking to some Silver Age and Bronze Age fans, they want a Superman that. The moment he opens his eyes, he is Superman. Mm. You know, he, he's got that. Yeah, I don't, uh, I've never been that guy. Mm-mm. I I want to I see that process. I want to yeah, see the, the person with this ability make that decision, and we see that here. We see him as a teenager make that decision, and then as an adult implement it. Right. Because there's, you know, I want to do good. How do I do that good? Well, I have to adopt this other identity, right? And uh, I, I never really minded that Jonathan and Clark came up with the symbol, because it being a family crest, it being a symbol of hope, it just being it being a Native American thing, uh, which they would eventually kind of hint mm. at in a miniseries mm. in 1997. Yeah, I don't or, care for that. Or, uh, or or here, where it's just you know we came up with this concept. Uh, Byrne always said it looked like two fish swimming past each other. Um, uh, so I, I, I can kind of see that. But in the end, it all doesn't matter because at the end of this issue, he's Superman. Right. And, you know, you can hear the Williams theme as he's lifting. Here it is. Uh, you, you, can, you can even hear the, 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 the George Reeves, you know, theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in either case, you could probably read it both ways and it, and it worked. But, it works both ways, actually. Yeah, it does. Uh, um, but now, you know, we're into the nitty gritty. You know, he's Superman. So what next? Right. The uh, only other the only other pithy comment that I'll make um, about this first issue is that when Byrne is describing the aura around mm-hmm. his body when they were talk- making the costume for him. Uh, and this kind of comes from two places because I also heard somewhere now this, I didn't verify this and look it up for this, but I had heard that Byrne didn't like the idea or thought it was silly that simply because material came from Krypton, that it was somehow now indestructible or it had all these qualities, you know, cloth is cloth, blah, 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 or whatever. Now, I don't know if he actually said that or made that a pithy comment or not. Um, of saying that it was silly that to think that it because it came from Krypton, but the fact that the aura protected the skin tight clothing around him. Okay, I can buy that. That's a that's that's you know we do have auras. The humans do project a little bit of a thing. There are certain cameras that can photograph certain things. Yeah, I'll go with that. I'll go along with the aura thing. Uh, but I would like a combination. This is the new me. This is current me. Old me thought, oh, you're just being stupid. New me thinks, okay, I'll go along with the aura, okay? But let's add the cape, okay? Give me the cape. 
Let's have the cape come from Krypton, like in the new 52 then, okay? Doesn't have to be the full blankets that mom made it out of with with him, like, you know, the famous scene we've all seen of Superboy using his heat vision to... <laughs> to just separate the thread. To, yeah. So she could reweave it and all. We don't have to go that far, okay? I'll, I'll, this will be my uh, 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 compromise with, uh, with John Byrne. I'll give you the aura, but give me the indestructible cape, okay? And then we got both. I like that. And, and, and really, the indestructible cape was more of a visual thing than anything else. Exactly. Then, you know, you see the cost of the battle. Yes, but uh-huh. imagine... And now we'll, we'll jump ahead a few years, okay? But imagine that incredible cover that we've all seen for the death of Superman that has become just an iconic cover, even for just meaning you've lost someone you love. They're using that cover of the tattered cape hanging there, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine how much more of an emotional impact that would be if you thought the cape was indestructible. Yeah, I can and see Doomsday that. just ripped the hell not only out of that, but Superman and his indestructible costume and cape. It adds that whole, you know, now if you look at it, now most people, and this is how cynical I am, I think in spite of this aura thing and the fact that as almost a visual thing periodically and kind of a joke, he would have to go back home and get Ma Kent to make him a new cape periodically. Um, I think in spite of all of that, you ask an average guy on the street, and they're going to tell you Superman's cape is indestructible. Yeah. They're not going to remember this part of the burn thing. And I think that's the interesting thing about having Superman be as old and have the history that he has had. I don't think any one human, unless they're like us and we have, you know, way too much information sometimes about this. But I don't think they think that. I think they have this kind of amalgam of... A little bit of the George Reeves, a little bit of the Silver Age, a little bit of uh, the burn, the 90s, the death. They've got a little bit of all of it in their head. So it's like periodically if somebody asked me, uh, did Superman ever marry Lois Lane? And I just want to think, well, now, do you mean... Do you mean yeah, well? Huh. I have that as a trivia question from time to time. It's like when when did Superman marry Lois Lane? It's just like <sighs> what continuity are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. So because yeah, it never happened. It happened in this imaginary story. It happened in the comic strip. It happened in 1996. It happened on Lois and Clark. Mm-hmm. So. so yeah. So you know it, it it did and it didn't. So realizing that. The current me, which is the guy a few minutes ago said has actually come around on his artwork about 160 degrees. Uh, reading this six, I was going to save this for my summary, but reading these six issues over the last couple of days. And I kept thinking, I think I might disappoint some people, but I'm kind of liking what John Byrne did here art wise with this guy. This is especially well in fact we're getting ready to get into that so that's really my summary of issue one and um and the new powers and the beginning of superman so now after he puts the costume on this wonderful iconic scene that's been reprinted everywhere a billion times of superman taking off this it's really a great scene here in my life uh like i said before earlier about four hours ago, I said that after reading this issue, I put it down and didn't read issue two for a week or so. So let's see why Bob didn't read issue two. 
Well, because he just read issue one, and you just know. So issue two will do the same thing. Mike, can you give us a little synopsis of what happened in Man of Steel issue two? Uh, the official story, the official title of the story is Story of the Century. Uh, the the my official title for it is The Misadventurous Lane Fashion Plate. <laughs> um, basically, we're following Lois Lane as she's chasing the super. Uh, she uses some of Lex Luthor's uh, resources, a helicopter specifically, to try to chase him down. And every time she thinks she has him, she's just missed him. Uh, Superman, meanwhile, is flying around and John Byrne is giving us a recreation of the super feats from Superman the movie. Finally, Lois Lane has this brilliant idea. She's going to put herself in danger so Superman will save her and then she'll get the story. Uh, So she drives her car into the river. Uh, Superman rescues her, takes her back to his apartment. She offers him Brie. He doesn't take it. This is important, people. He does not eat Brie. And he doesn't eat it, despite every freaking newspaper article and magazine article around this time that would insist that he did. He turned it down because he never developed a taste for it. Right. And he doesn't drink when he flies. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, so she's trying to get information out of him. He's like, look, this isn't going to do you any good. So deuces, I'm out of here. And oh, by the way, I knew you were faking it, but uh, oh, and I know where everybody lives because I'm creepy. (laughs) Um, So Lois writes up the story and she thinks she's got it. She goes into the Daily Planet. She hasn't called in. She she hasn't done anything that she really should have done. And Perry's like, sorry, Lois, can't use the story that I already have. Already have? Well, why don't you meet the newest addition to the Daily Planet, Clark Kent, who's sitting there tacking on a typewriter, wearing the traditional Clark Kent suit, I might add. It's the only time you'll see it. Right. But he's wearing the blue suit with Got the, the blue red suit and the red and blue tie. Tie, yes. Not only does not he give only. not only does he give his editor in chief a proper respect. <laughs> well, issue two, as you say, from Lois is basically this is this is Lois. This is the introduction we get of the new Lois Lane uh, of this time period. And uh, has anybody done a tally of how many times she changes clothes in this episode? Oh my! It's like it's like Byrne had a subscription to Vogue and Cosmo and every other thing. And I understand that he's doing that to kind of you know one of the things that they were trying to do is much like they tried to do in the seventies. They tried to update his wardrobe a little bit. Right. Want to modernize? Uh, so, you know. Really and truly, this is going to be one of the last times Lois is in any way likable under Byrne. Uh, Byrne wrote a very bitchy Lois Lane, and in subsequent years, he has said that he would have liked to have gotten rid of her, and Lana was the only girl for Superman. Um, which really comes out in, in his portrayal of Lois. Like, here, I like her because she's the go-getter. She's trying to get this story. She's not letting it get away from her. We see like 30 seconds of Perry White, so we can't get a really good feel of him. But it's it's Lois's determination combined with Superman making his presence known. And we got a real Hill Street Blues type hostage situation that Superman takes care of. 
we've got Superman turning down a boombox after saving a girl from being mugged. Yeah, that was kind of funny too. Uh, and, and it was it was a true Superman moment. It was like you know we all got to live together. Let's uh, let's turn that down. Um, not in a I am your older brother telling you what to do. Just you know trying to be a decent person. Well, that's what I love so much about his writing in this. Oh, excuse me, but it, it Superman is not condescending in this at all. No, any not way. at all. It's just done so well. You know, when he when he offers his uh, his help, he's smiling. He's just like, "I'm here to help." This look, obviously, I don't have a gun, so I'm going to go in here and I'm going to take care of this because I can because I'm bulletproof. And even the shots of him flying, because burn, you know. Andy Leyland has said it, and I agree with it. I don't think there are, and and you can go ahead and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't think anybody drew flying as dynamically as Byrne did. He did things with Superman's body language while flying that was revolutionary for the character. Because he actually looked like he... Sometimes some artists kind of drew him kind of stiff with his arms out and, mm-hmm. you know, and all mm-hmm. that. And and, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that there weren't artists that drew a Superman that didn't draw a good looking Superman flying. Just from my personal taste, I think Byrne has like the tops right. on that. Well, I love I love uh, the, the artwork again in this particular issue. And we go to I don't know what page it is, but. It's, it, it does something that they, they play on again, uh, and maybe he got it from the movie, but it reminded me of the right after the helicopter scene where uh, uh, Superman puts the helicopter down in the movie and puts Lois down. I hope this doesn't, you know, dissuade you from flying. It's still statistically safest way, blah, blah, blah. And then he kind of does that little takeoff mm-hmm. into the darkness and flies away. Uh, it happened in this in this thing here when Superman just kind of, as he finishes talking, he just takes off. He's gone. He's just up, and but you see it, and he's looking back down, and then just think that is so dramatic. That just looks so. It looks so controlled. It looks like he knows what he's doing and how to do it in the air. And Byrne does do really good cape. I got to give him that. He really. I mean, it's. It, this is where he's kind of getting his feet wet with the whole thing. But one of the things I love about his his use of Superman's cape is that there are times where he is completely and utterly like it's George Reeves and you see the little bit of the blue shirt. Oh, I love under, that. Uh, under the cape. Yeah, I figured you would. Uh, I figured you would absolutely love that. Love that. It's, it's how I used to, as a kid, would wear my cape. All the other kids when we were playing, I'm talking little kids when you're still running around with towels and stuff on. Um, uh, all the other guys would tie theirs around their neck. And I'm, are you out of your, that's not how you no, wear. you tuck it into your shirt. You tuck it into your shirt and you have it draped behind you a little bit. That's and how you, you do it. And as a kid, I could ne- there were two things I could never figure out as a kid. How the, how the cape doesn't fall out and how the shirt ripped. Yes. Uh, both were kind of... Uh, broken for me around age 12, 13 mm-hmm. uh, when the Smithsonian had their Superman exhibit. Oh, uh, you saw behind uh, the curtain a little bit. Superman, many lives, many worlds. Yeah. Uh, we, My family went to the Smithsonian on a regular basis when I was a kid because oh. uh, we had we had family in the Maryland, Virginia area. Wonderful. So, so I got to see that exhibit. 
And thanks to Alan Leach Jr., I have pictures of that exhibit. Oh, wonderful. And one of the things I realized when looking at it is they had the breakaway shirt. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that at age 11, 12, I mean, it was probably 11 because it was 7 when we went, uh, I realized button. That's why I can't do that with my button down. <laughs> right, right. Um, and and their then, moms aren't going to sew my shirts back anymore. <laughs> there there was a, a two-hour thing where they had like the making of Superman 1 and Superman 2. Uh, which they finally released on DVD with that 14-disc box set. Mm. And while watching that, they showed Christopher Reeve getting... The cape was kind of looped around his arms. Right. Had like a little harness under there, kind of. Yeah, and you just didn't see that. So I'm like, okay, so so I'm not an idiot. Right. I just didn't have, you know, a costumer making, you know, doing my cape when I was a kid. You get the sense here that... While Metropolis isn't Gotham, there is a bit of a crime problem. Right. Uh, so well, Superman's presence is kind of needed. Right. Especially, uh, it's kind of like in the, the Superman, the movie, in that it seems like all of a sudden, his, his first day, and in his first day, first hour, uh, he's going to just go through the whole town. You know, I, I half expected to see a ship in front of the police yeah. station. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so... Yeah, I think my uh, one of my main notes was, you know, this is Superman the movie. But mm-hmm. but I, I like this Lois and I don't like her later on in Burns Run. Uh in the in this time period, in this era, the 90s Lois is not my favorite Lois. Um particularly when John Byrne wrote her. Um I like later what Dan Jurgens, I mean we mentioned Dan Jurgens earlier. I like what he did, but that we started to get into the mid and late nineties for or mid nineties for that. Well, it really, you know, for me, it was after Byrne left, uh, in 88 mm-hmm. and they went through the whole exile. As soon as he came back, Lois was, was a character and, and Jeffrey and I really discovered this when we were doing the show and got to those issues. It was, a, we started liking Lois again. Because mm, mm-hmm. somewhere in like 1989, they decided, look, she can't be a shrew. She's right. got to be some. And this is this is the the kind of fault of of some portrayals of Lois Lane is like, why does Clark like her? Bingo. She is she is terrible to him. It's this is why you know a lot of people want to kick me in the teeth over preferring the Lester cut of Superman two over the Donner cut. Mm. In the Donner cut, she is so dismissive of Clark at the yeah. beginning and end of that film. Yeah, yeah. And in the Lester cut, again, like I said before, they're friends. Mm-hmm. She cares about his feelings. She's just you know, there's that great scene, and it's silly, you know, because he crushes his thumb and he's looking all clumsy. But she looks at him. She goes, Clark. You know, I wouldn't say these things if you know I didn't care about you. Right. And I was just like, and every time I see that, I go, ah, <laughs> that's right. what I want. Like she's not in love with this guy. She's in love with Superman. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. But you can't be in love with Superman and be totally dismissive of every other man in your life. Exactly. Uh, and we get that Lois for a really long time. I mean. There's some like little play, and they introduce Cat Grant, and there's you know some some you know the, that's where that's like where the real triangle comes in. Right. Uh, but it's just like at some point, especially after he revealed something to Lois 
Pa revealed something to Lois that proved that Jonathan Kent is the worst. Lo- Don't have Jonathan Kent come up with your cover. <laughs> no. He is no. going to screw it up for you <laughs> completely. So, um, what I like about this issue is one, it does feel like Superman the movie, but it's not like the Jeff Johnsian way where they're just ripping it off. It right, right. feels like the movie. It's not the movie. Exactly, exactly. Um, and there are times where Superman looks like Christopher Reeve, kinda. Kinda, but I think that's only because we know Christopher Reeve. Had we not seen that movie, I, that's not, Byrne didn't do that on purpose here. It happened because it happened, I think. I think, though, in the Jeff Johns, obviously, Secret Origins. Uh, uh, Gary Frank got out his Superman the Movie trading card set. Exactly. Just- he was just trying, right. and in certain panels, that is so creepy that it uh, took yeah, me it right out of me. it. And there are people out yeah. there that want to, again, kick me in the teeth over that. Well, uh I don't care. <laughs> so yeah. It's just like, they can kick us. about a fictional character here. This yeah. is not my hill to die on. So. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Because I feel the same way. I thought, you know, uh, I liked and didn't like. I thought it was just creepy. It was just creepy. Um, because they were trying to make it seem like something else. But then why are you trying to do all this Christopher Reeve movie ripoff stuff? It yeah. just didn't make Why didn't you just call it that? Just say what it is. Jeff Johns and uh, Frank do uh, Superman the movie retelling in a comic book form. But, but anyway, uh, that's down another rabbit hole. Superman is glorious throughout this entire issue. Like you say, he's not condescending. Not at all. I mean, he confronts the guy and he's like, you don't really want to steal that young woman's purse, do you? She doesn't look as if she has much more money than to spare than you. Hamana, hamana, hamana. Hamana, no. <laughs> uh, and he's like, oh, miss. And the guy's like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. And, he, and he's like, that should hold him until, you know, you can call the police and press charges. And I think that radio and he and when he goes by now, he's just like, you know, gives her a little salute. And it's yeah. just like, I'm not better than you, but uh, I got to go. And, go. you know, he takes care. My, my favorite is like the the, the woman uh, hostage taker goes, you wouldn't hit a lady. He's like, lady. <laughs> no. And then he flicks her. Right. Uh, he goes, but then I never met a lady who carries dynamite under her coat, especially not dynamite rigged to explode at the touch of a finger. So, <laughs> yeah. And, oh, and that brings up that that scene brings up the new power, the super, the heat vision. The way he does the way he does heat vision is different now. Yeah, it's not laser beams that shoot out of his eyes. Yeah. Uh, uh, wrong. Sorry, John. That got revamped later. Thankfully. Yeah, really, it was Perez that brought back the the laser eyes. Right. Now, um, I think they've overused the whole red smoldering eyes now. I call them the red angry at eye, the the angry red eyes of anger. There you go. Uh, and but but here's the thing. It, it was John Byrne's theory of Superman's powers. Now, we've talked before about Byrne overthinking it. And here's one of those areas where I appreciate the thought he put into it, but again, I think he's putting too much into it. Way too much into this aspect. He wanted yeah. to make most of Superman's powers kinetic in, a, in nature. So he can look at something and produce fire. It's not so much heat vision. Uh, when he's flying, he's using an advanced form of telekinesis. That's why when he lifts something when he's flying, it feels lighter than when he's on the ground when he's using a physical problem. Now, you could argue it was simpler in the in the Silver and Bronze Age. And then I'm going to shoot back, oh, really? Is that why when he lost his powers 
Uh, he was still super strong because Kryptonians were thicker than, I mean, you know, right. he, mm-hmm. he didn't ha- have his superpowers, but he was still powerful. He was, right. you know, he could still leap an eighth of a mile. So I think it's trading one thing for another. Uh, it's not something I ever really glommed onto. My, my feeling is, is that Superman's powers are like the Hulk's powers. I don't need an ex, an overly extended explanation of why the Hulk does what he does. I just want to see the Hulk smash things. Right. Uh, I just want to see Superman fly. You don't mm-hmm. need to. And if you tell me, oh, it's because he's under a yellow sun, I'm good. I'm good. I, I've bought into it. Right. My suspension, uh, my willing suspension of disbelief is firmly in place. If you keep talking to me, I'm going to start thinking about it. Now, <laughs> And then I'm going to start getting angry because this is the part of the story I don't want to think about. I want right. to think about the themes. I want to think about character. Right. I don't want to think about why Superman uses heat vision. Well, you know, I think that's the difference in the 30-something Bob of 1986 and the 30-year-later Bob is basically that. Uh, I really got hung up on... Uh, on the nitpick, the details, the John Byrne overthinking. And I'll still say it is overthinking. I think he, and then here's another area where I think he just went way too far to try to say, this is a new Superman and everything is different. We're going to try to make it more scientifically based. But in doing so, uh, you missed. You're, 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 You're saying it's scientifically based, but now I can make as much fun of your theory 30 years later as you were making fun of the theory that came before it so to me uh he went too far he didn't need to say oh it's telekinesis and his powers of looking at something now he can draw the heat from it it's so much more convoluted than just simply saying he can produce heat beams out of his eyes and fry the damn thing yeah pretty much i mean you know so that's where my nitpicky comes in is in little things like that that now later on I look at it and think, well, that's really not any smarter. And I think that's the part that irritated me about DC and the promotion of this was not saying that, wow, look what we've done. This is a great new Superman. We hope you love him. But here's a here's the way Superman should have been all these years, and you're an idiot for liking it the way it was. And, and again, I, I totally see that feeling because the funny thing about my exposure to Superman fandom is that it wasn't until I got on the internet that I even knew that people were pissed off about man of steel. (laughs) Right. And okay. So, so imagine that 11 years after I started reading, uh, reading these books and I thought I had a pretty good handle on things. Mm -hmm. I stumble upon this web page that call that, that that's an offshoot of another Superman website uh, called the Iron Age, where this person just lights into everything that has mm. been happening since John Byrne took over, and I'm like, people don't like this, <laughs> and it's naive, but you know, when you are only exposed to one thing, right? That's all you can think. It's like because DC was really good about keeping the continuity pretty much straight for. 14, 15 years. Yeah. And, you know, now I understand it. Now I get it because I went through that too. I never, 
there was a point where I thought DC was thumbing their nose at me. Um, I don't take it personally anymore. Right. Um, I just look at it as that there is a point in comic books, especially where your time is kind of over and that doesn't mean you can't enjoy what's there, but it's not for you anymore. It's for a different audience. Right. And I'm okay with that. Now there Mm -hmm. was a point where I wasn't, but I am okay with that now. Right. I've heard a few of your early podcasts where where you were not particularly happy with the way things were at that particular time. So, uh, I'm just glad there weren't podcasts in 1986. You know, yeah, that's the thing that I, uh, uh, that's the funny thing. I think about that sometimes, uh, how, how it would have been, because it would have been the exact same thing Mm -hmm. as now. And, and here's how I know that, uh, I, I read this great book by a guy named Bill Shelley called the golden age of comic book fandom. Uh, and Bill Shelley has written a bunch of one book you should read of his is called Sense of Wonder, where he goes through his personal history of being a comic book fan. Mm, okay. uh, I think you would really enjoy it uh, because he was one of the founders of comic book fandoms in the 60s. Uh, he was one of those people that did a fanzine and towards the end of the book and the book goes up to like 1969 one of the guys. I think it was GB Love. I think mm-hmm. it was the name of the this this one particular member of the fandom. Sense of said, Wonder. Yeah, Sense of Wonder. Uh, This one particular guy that was one of the foremost people of doing fanzines and stuff said that he didn't want to read Green Lantern anymore. Relevant stories, and that's not his Green Lantern. And when I read that, this light bulb went off in my head. Like, fandom never changes. And that's okay. But fandom never changes. No, it doesn't they, change. They they will go through these periods where you're in sync with it. And there's going to come a day where you're not. Mm-hmm. And it's not that DC is trying to piss you off personally. <laughs> it, to my to my mind, that, that that's right. how I feel. I, I, I don't take it like I'm getting ripped off. I'm taking it that I had a longer run than I should have had in the first place. Right. So... I'll re- I continue to read Superman to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not have the emotional connection to the stories that I do to what we're talking about right now. Uh-huh. But I still read the character because I like Superman. Right. I, I like having him in my life on a monthly basis. Uh, but I, I had a point somewhere in there. Let me, let me, let me let's start talking about the comic again. Um, <laughs> I mean, but you know, I really don't have too much more to say about issue two. It's, it's really enjoyable. It's got some really good scenes of Superman doing what Superman does best. Uh, he's not fighting a villain. He's not tearing up Metropolis. He's just, you know, making a difference where he can. And mm-hmm. Lois Lane's after the story and she gets it. But unfortunately, she loses out yeah. to this a is, now morally questionable Clark Kent. This is a perfect Lois Lane. I really enjoyed this Lois Lane. In fact, uh, in the first issue, the first words out of Lois Lane's mouth after he saved the space shuttle was something like, hey, wait a minute, Buster, or something yeah. to that effect. Hey, buddy, wait a minute, but or but basically, everybody else is pulling their hair out and scared and glad to be alive. And she's right above it all saying, hey, wait a minute, buddy. You ain't leaving that quick. I got a few questions. And 
again, going back to Burns' artwork, that panel or those two panels of her saying that you could almost see time freeze with her and Clark, at that point still Clark. I mean, he wasn't in costume. He was being Superman, but not in costume. That moment froze in time. You could see the two of them. There were, you, you could have almost drawn a spark at that moment. Mm-hmm. Boom. There's something there. And I think Byrne captured it, um, captured it on the page. I mean, you know, it, it was there once again. So that Lois Lane saying, hey, wait a minute, Buster. And then this issue, what the whole issue, what is she doing? She's chasing the story, the story that she doesn't ultimately get. But she's chasing the story. We're seeing the Lois Lane that I loved. And I thought, okay, I have no problem with her on this one. I thought this is this is going to be a good Lois Lane. Mm, didn't always work out that way. But Lois is a tricky character to write for, I think. Mm-hmm. She's very, I'll agree with that. very tricky to write for. So that's my summarization of issue two. Loved this Lois Lane. Issue three. We have one night in Gotham City where Superman has apparently decided mysterious Batman character. Batman has other ideas and, in fact, reveals that he has placed a special device on him that if Superman pierces that aura, a pers- an innocent person will die by being blowed up real good. <laughs> uh, but they're kind of distracted by the fact that there's this uh, thief named Magpie who's been killing people in Gotham City. And so Superman and Batman team up and put a stop to her. And at the end of the issue, they basically realize that they don't like each other much, but they have kind of this weird respect for each what each other does. Uh, Superman realizes why Batman has to be the way he is. Gotham's a different town than Metropolis. And uh, we also find out that apparently in this world... Uh, Marvel editors Mark Gruenwald and Mike Carlin kind of got down on their luck because they became uh, Magpie's uh, <laughs> goons, essentially. So, yeah, yeah, that's real. They were they were in the story. Yeah, they, they were there. Uh, Mark Gruenwald and my and future Superman editor Mike Carlin, Mike Carlin. who uh, Byrne worked with at Marvel. Uh, yeah, they're 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 straight up in this story. Uh, the um the the disillusion of the Batman-Superman friendship was not John Byrne. Uh, it actually happened in the final issue of World's Finest. Right. Uh, where uh, they basically broke up their friendship because Superman had put himself into a position that Batman didn't agree with, so they stopped being as good of friends as they were. This story uh, is better than that one. Uh, yeah, because here's the thing, you know... In later hands would would make their their meet, initial meetings more tenacious and more like Batman doesn't like him because he's an alien. Here they're just two people that don't that have different ideologies and different um, different ways of doing the same job. Mm-hmm. And what I like about how Batman is portrayed is that, yeah, he seems a little Machiavellian. In fact, he uses that word, which mm-hmm. is, by the way, where I learned what the term Machiavellian meant. <laughs> uh, it was the first time I'd ever come across it. Don't tell me kids don't learn stuff from comic books. But for for his what he has to do, he kind of has to be more of a hard-ass 
really, in, in terms of, of, of having to deal with crime in Gotham. He doesn't have superpowers. So he can't, he can't, ha- he doesn't have the luxury of what, um, of what, uh, Superman has really. Uh, and that's not me being kind of, you know, it's not me being insulting to Batman or to Superman. It's just the fact of the matter is, is that Batman's human and Superman isn't. Right. Uh, it's a little dubious that Superman would go looking for him because he seems to have his, Hands full in in uh, in uh, <laughs> in Metropolis, really. Right. But to my mind, uh, I think this is the best way to handle. If they're going to be adversarial, this is the best way to handle it. Uh, because the other thing to consider is that Frank Miller had established through his through Dark Knight Returns that because he wanted to portray Superman in a certain um, certain way, Superman became like a tool of the government, and they hated each other. Right. Uh, Byrne went with that, but he didn't go that far, you know? So I don't know if I'm making any sense here. I don't think I really am. Yeah, you're uh, making a lot of sense. And in fact, um, I had to look up, after I read this, I went, wait a minute. And I had to look up the dates of the Dark Knight, of uh, Miller's Dark Knight. I had to look it up to see which one came first, because it wasn't clear to me. And uh, when I realized that uh, the Dark Knight came before this one, and I'm thinking, thank you, John Byrne, for bringing a little sensi- sensibility back to this. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, not bury my little lead on on issue three at all. Uh, this was my favorite of the six issues. I really liked this issue, but at the same time, and this may sound weird, it's one of those, you know, holding two different thoughts in your head at the same time kind of thing. This may sound weird, but I enjoyed the read of this one. I think more than the others. This was maybe my favorite of the six, but I don't think this was the right place for this issue. That might sound weird. It, it's like, it's almost like, um, particularly with the first four, it, it, it's almost like um, they needed to feel like, well, we need to do something with Batman because he's pop. He's our other guy. Put Batman in there. Do a Batman thing. And it's almost like they stopped the story of the developing Superman and his circle of people. See, I would see no problem with the fourth issue, which is basically Lex Luthor, being the third issue. And then actually the sixth issue being the fourth issue with this Batman story and actually the Bizarro story being two separate entities somewhere else. Yeah, uh, I, I I see what you're saying there. Uh mm-hmm. Again, this is one of those weird things where because it's it's always how it was, it's how I'll all see it. Right, right. Um, and, and maybe that comic book story, but I will completely agree that, you know, we haven't really even gotten Perry White and Jimmy Olsen yet. No. So, Mm-mm. and frankly, we don't really get them at all. Not in this in, miniseries. In this miniseries. Mm-hmm. When you really think about in comics where those are two very important characters, they're kind of sidelined. Right. Uh, which is interesting. And, you know, I like this story because I like John Byrne drawing Batman. Um, My God, he looks great. He he was and, – and here's the other thing. Remember when I said before that there were things slapping me in the face to get me to read mm-hmm. John Byrne's Superman? Mm-hmm. When my family and I came back from our trip to uh, Ocean City, Maryland, uh, 
It had to be, yeah, around this time. No, it would have to be later. We got back from a trip from somewhere, and I went to Walden Legends number five and bought it, <laughs> and, or my parents bought it, mm-hmm. and that's burn drawn. And uh, the reason why I bought it is it said Captain Marvel on the cover, and I thought it looked really cool. And inside, I saw Batman, and Batman was like black, like the blue mm-hmm. was black. Mm-hmm. I was like, God, that looks good. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> when I, I finally read this, I was just like, ah, oh, there's that John Byrne Batman, which kind of looks like Superman wearing a cowl. Kind but, of, kind of. But a but, lot of artists have done that. That's not. I love Jim Aparo. Jim Gordon is Bruce Wayne with white hair and a mustache and glasses. So, <laughs> right. Um, right. The, uh, but this is Batman is iconic. This Batman yeah. in this, if you know, you could take again, take away all the bubbles, take away all the thoughts, all the sounds, all the text, take away, just grab any picture of Batman in this issue. And you will say that's an iconic Batman. There's a great pose of him. He's got his head slightly turned to the right, but it's a full front face look. The the bat black bat symbol across the full chest now, not the little one in the circle. It's this is a great looking Batman. He draws a great looking Batman. And he's he's kind of he, he's he's rough. I mean, he, yeah. when uh, when Bull gets away from him, he's just like. Uh, you know, he's not going to like, you know, being, you know, uh, he's not he's not going to like having to go around on crutches for a while. So mm-hmm. you have the sense that, you know, this Batman's not playing. Right. Now, and, in this, go ahead. And I, I think that this Batman's only real problem is they can't do math. Because <laughs> if you look at the number of people that he says she's killed earlier in the story. Right. And then he goes over how many he's she's actually killed Magpie. Mm hmm. Uh, it, it's a different number, and that's bugged me since I first read this. Back really, I didn't count the number, but he said, or Batman says something about nine. I think he said, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Is there more than that? Well, he says in the very first page, uh, she's going to strike again. Where is it? Eight people have died. He says. Mm. So then he starts going through the litany. So you have the first guy on page nine, and then it's. So that's one plus three, two is six plus three is nine. Nine. So it's one, but it's it's my nitpicky thing. Yeah, that's a little nitpicky, but that's okay. I'm glad that you do that because that makes me not feel so bad about being a nitpicky guy. The, uh, there's a neat little Looney Tunes reference when Magpie sticks the dynamite into Bull's mouth and Mark Gruenwald goes, not happy birthday, not happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was, that's something else about this entire series that surprised me in the reread. Uh, there's a sense of humor here that I didn't expect. I didn't, yeah, ex- I didn't expect having it. fun. Yeah, exactly. I didn't expect the that. The world is kind of, you know, she yes. just blew this dude's head off, but it's kind of funny. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, we had a total George Reeves Superman busted into a wall. Terrific scene. God, I uh, love that. When we get a really neat scene of him sucking in all the poison and dissipating it in space. We even get a, um, you know, kind of Superman being compassionate, uh, feeling sorry for Margaret Pye. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but then... But then uh, Batman goes, you think I don't? She's not a real criminal, not the kind of gutter slime I've dedicated myself to destroying. And then basically, he, but his, his, his final thing is, 
you know, I feel sorry for her, but you know who I feel really sorry for? The dead people she's killed. Yes. Well, th- that that page summed up... In fact, you could almost go in those two last panels there. That's Superman and Batman right there. Yeah. The way they look at her. Uh, and again, that's such a wonderful scene when Superman rips off her mask. And over the course of those panels, he does a little thing of her kind of kneeling and falling uh, into her own pity, into her own self. It was really kind of an emotional little scene in the midst of all the other stuff going on. So here's this woman who's killed all these people coming to her own self-realization. And at the same time, you're seeing these wonderful images of Superman and Batman. Yeah, and and here's the thing, and this is where I, I really disagree with people that say that it was John Byrne that kind of ruined the friendship or it was, you know, it was, it was here that the friendship was ruined. Batman in the very last panel, you know, Superman says, well, I don't, I I still won't say I fully approve of your methods, Batman. And I'm going to be keeping an eye on you to make sure you don't blow it for the rest of us. But you know, good luck. And he says, same to you. And he goes, a remarkable man, a remarkable man. He thinks all things considered, who knows in a different reality, I might've called him friend. Right. And, that's really where if they're not going to get along, that's where I want it to stay. Mm-hmm. They're not friends. So they'll work together. Right. They'll, they ha- they'll unite for a common cause, which they do in action comics annual number one, which has them going up against vampires. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then teaming up later, uh, in dark Knight over Metropolis. But I, 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 it's really later, certain writers and it's not all writers really but certain writers that really kind of take it to an extreme which I don't think is necessary because to me Batman and Superman are two sides of the same coin right they are the alpha and the omega of all superheroes when you really think about it yep in in terms of of everybody from Spider-Man to even kind of Captain America you know mm-hmm. it's it's you know you have superpowered Superman on one side you have very human Batman on the other and they right. both fight for justice uh, for very different reasons. And I think Byrne kind of set up that new dynamic. Uh, will I agree with you that maybe this wasn't the best time to do that? Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that, but I still really like it. Well, I love the, like I say, I love the the issue. I uh, uh, It, again, may be my favorite of the issue because um, to go back to my reading at the time, uh, it seems to me that it was probably not quite a year before that that The Last World's Finest was out, which had the final, the breakup, so to speak, story in it. And I really hated that. I thought they were both out of character in that story, that I understood what they were going for. Okay, fine. You want to set a new tone. They had been building up to that in World's Finest anyway. So I thought they were going to do it like they had done everything previous to that in continuity that okay they're they're kind of having these disagreements batman's going through a rough time all this stuff is happening uh and it would just be the same as they always did in continuity they would split up they would go their own ways they wouldn't be talking for a while and then they would you know some justice league story down the line would get them back together and they would be friends again that's how i thought things were going to happen in the balance of the year, because they broke up probably early in the year of 86. The way my memory has it, I think it was 
late 85, early 86, when that world's last world's finest came out. But um, so, you know, they were kind of on the outskirts anyway. I look at this now as thinking that Byrne kind of almost um, gave them a way to actually work together again. He almost patched that thing up. So I look mm-hmm. at it differently than those people who try to blame John Byrne for breaking up Batman and Superman. That had already taken place. What he did was give them a groundwork or a ground, uh, uh, you know, a. Uh, a ground zero, a place where they now can work together and maybe build a relationship in the future. Um, so I didn't, I didn't have a problem with that, and I don't remember even having a problem with it uh, back then. I don't the the thirty four year old Bob. I don't remember having negative feelings about this issue at all in any way. In fact, I think I actually laughed again in the beginning of this because that's how they first meet. Batman's throwing his bat rope somewhere to swing into the next thing and it's Superman that catches it <laughs> and kind of flies him away. Uh, well, that's pretty funny. So they still did some, brought in a, a sense of humor. Personally, again, I go back to my wheelhouse, which is in the early to mid 60s when Superman and Batman are best friends yeah. on the planet. There are no two closer humans anywhere than Superman and Batman. And my heart is still there. I like that idea. I like the fact that whether it's to help one another save their secret identity, they'll pose for each other. Superman will wear the Batman outfit uh, periodically here and there. Uh, Whatever the case may be, the two of them were best friends. And I personally still like that. I think there is plenty of room for that. I would like to see the new 52 build into that. I don't know that they are. They have. They, no, they're 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 best friends in the new 52. Well, uh, I'm way behind in Batman Superman. I don't know if that's where they're building it up in. No, but in, in Justice League, in the Doomed storyline. In the Doomed yeah. story, I really liked their relationship in Doomed. I thought, okay, good. This this makes me feel comfortable now. That's that's really where they are. They're they talk about the fact that they're friends. Good. They should be. I think they um, should be. Um, I agree. I, I'm glad we're kind of getting back to that. Yeah, I think they should be. and But I don't have a problem with, with issue three. Uh, and I say it over again, it may be my favorite of this series overall. Overall. Not, you know, as an individual Superman story. But I think uh, um, I really couldn't nitpick this one to death. There were some little stuff here and there. But this was a fun issue. This was a fun read. And uh, I liked both Batman and Superman in this one. And I think they laid the groundwork for what could have been a really good relationship. So that is amazing. We have covered now. And gee, it only took us, what, 30 minutes to do this? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we have covered the first three issues of this epic series. Uh, This story has to be the most reprinted uh, series, if not the entire thing, I'll bet that first issue is um, the most reprinted practically of all Superman stories. It's interesting because, you know, there was two covers for the first issue. There's a, a shirt rip one and then the one that kind of fits into the framework right. of it. I still don't have the shirt rip. I can't um, believe I don't have the shirt rip, an original of the shirt rip. They also, you know, they... 
they did something really weird if you if you've got issues uh, Super, Superman number one Ac- Adventures four twenty four and Action Comics number five eighty four. They had basically a contest you could enter uh, where you could rent win a collected edition, mm. and I actually have one. Oh, wonderful! Um, yeah. It was at it was about twenty bucks. My wife gave me a back when we first started dating in nineteen ninety nine. My wife mm. gave me a gift card to the comic shop I was going to at the time, <laughs> and I used it to buy this because I had my eye on it for years. And I have finally verified that what I have is what you got from that. It's the real uh, deal. Yeah, Diamond also got them, which is where the comic shop manager that sold it to me got it. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 kind of weird because it's not what you would consider a traditional trade paperback. They put the six issues together, ads and all. Wow. And bound it in this book. And you know it's from the 80s because there's a grid pattern on it. Because everything was grid. I don't know why. Very soon after that, they reprinted it in a comic book store version and a bookstore version from Ballantine Books. Mm. Uh, and I have both of those. And then <laughs> around uh, the time of Doomsday, they put out another printing, which was had a black cover with the red S on it. Uh, that was the very first one I ever bought. Mm, okay. And then around 2006, they did. They started a whole series reprinting Burns Run uh, under the title Superman: The Man of Steel. Uh, I bought that because I am an addict. Because you are. Uh, and <laughs> EMI Productions, I think MPI or EMI Productions, uh, in the late 80s actually reprinted the entire miniseries uh, in a book-on-tape version. No kidding. Uh, You can download these at the Superman homepage. If you're really interested in hearing stilted actors read these books to you. Do they read it as as if they're reading the book? Or is it like acted? It's a little bit of both. Uh, I might have to listen to those. I might have to listen to those. I haven't listened. I need to listen to those. That'll be fun. Even though you said stilted acting, that's still going to be fun. It's terrible. Is it? Um, (laughs) Because they also put out like the untold legend of the Batman tapes Mm, uh, based on that miniseries. So which one of the, which one of the uh, trades, my, my trade of man of steel, I've got one of the two earlier ones, but the one that I've got on my shelf over here has a forward or introductory by Ray Bradbury. uh, They all do. All of them? So that is part of all of them? All of the trade paperbacks have the foreword by Ray Bradbury. Okay, good. Right, and they also, reprint the, um, they also reprint the Meanwhile column that Dick Giordano wrote for, you know, a, for, it appeared in all the DC books, but mm-hmm. especially in this one. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's also an afterword by John Byrne that's in all of them as well. Okay. And the Dick, Giordano, Dick Giordano, since you mentioned him, um, what about his inking over Byrne's pencils? In Might this? not be him. Um, <laughs> that's what I, that's why I, brought, I have a note. I was supposed to mention this a lot earlier in the run, but uh, I slipped away. Uh, I had heard that, it may not be Dick Giordano who actually did the inking on this. Might have been Frank McLaughlin. Uh, yeah. What do you think? What side do you come down on? Um, I don't. I, I'm not that good at art. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I will agree with both. So, in your opinion, you're not real sure. You'll go with either one, but you do know John Byrne, 
this is quintessential John Byrne artwork, correct? Yeah, I, I, I feel that his artwork looks better when he is inked by Terry Austin or Carl Kessel, as he will be later in the Superman run. Uh, but uh, now here's where things get a little dicey in terms of reprints because you have all the trade paperbacks that I just mentioned. Uh-huh. There was also in 1993 something called the DC Silver Edition where they put out reprints of certain books. Uh, Man of Steel number one was part of that. It was also in starting in 1999 and going into 2000. DC put out a bunch of specials called Millennium Edition. Mm. And this was them reprinting famous issues of their past for the new millennium. Man of Steel, number one, was the ninth one they released. It was re- This first issue was reprinted in Superman, The Greatest Stories Ever Told, Volume 1, which came out in 2004. And the first... Kryptonian pages are reprinted in the world of Krypton trade paperback. And if you were like me back in 2006 and went to Best Buy a week or two before Superman Returns came out and maxed out your Best Buy car by buying (laughs) all of the Superman DVD box sets that came out that day, you got a bunch of different, six different reprints of this book with with other covers. So oh. that's just the first issue. Wow. The second issue has been New Adventures of Superman trade paperback, which was released in 94 to coincide with the television series. And Lois Lane, A Celebration of 75 Years, which came out uh, last year. And the third issue was reprinted in the Superman, Batman, The Greatest Stories Ever Told trade paperback from 2007. Wow. So it's really interesting that these things keep getting reprinted in one way or the other. It is amazing. It is amazing. In spite of the fact that uh, little bits of it have changed over the years, that it may not be part of the so-called canon anymore. I don't think it's the last time this will be reprinted. I think something will come up again. DC will say, you know, who knows, even maybe for Convergence, they'll throw out some other stuff. I am so wanting an absolute edition of this. I just, I want it. I don't know what else you would do. I don't know if you just reprint some more of the burn run. I would just, I, I shut up and take my money. It would be gorgeous, wouldn't it? It really would. Absolutely amazing. I have, um, you know, I, I, I think if people were tuning in expecting, you know, an Ali Frazier fight here, <laughs> I, I hope I haven't disappointed them and I hope I haven't, you know, uh, ruined my rep as a Silver Age guy, because trust me, I am still dyed in the wool, Kurt Swan, George Reeves, those are my guys. But this is a good series, people. This is this is a really good series, in spite of the nitpicky stuff, which I still don't like. I still don't like it being a Matrix, a bunch of goo. Okay, I think I've said that. And if he's going to drive in the whole, he's an American, I'm going to keep driving in. No, he's Kryptonian. <laughs> <laughs> so, but so far... In the first three issues, it's a shame we couldn't think of anything to say about them. This is a good read. This was a fun read. And, uh, Mike, I'm really glad we decided to do this. Reading this John Byrne series, not once in my brain did I say, well, that's not Superman. So once you get past the little things that I dislike about the origin that, that 
even today, I don't think needed to be changed. They don't affect the stories that can be told about this particular version of the Man of Steel. So what do you want to say to sum up now the first three issues before we um, uh, end your first appearance on the Superman Forever podcast? <laughs> I, uh, I enjoy it today pretty much just as much as I enjoyed it that fall Saturday in 1988 when I first read the, the first four issues of this series. By that point, I had been reading the books for over a year, and I was still of that mindset that I think we kind of lose at some point, but when we first start reading comics, it's like, ooh, that's where it all started. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I, you know, that was the year that I was really making an effort, and it took me a little while, but to, to collect all of Post-Crisis Superman. And I remember reading those first four issues and just drinking in everything that was becoming about the the introduction to my Superman. It's 20 some odd years later and I feel exactly the same way. It's amazing uh, that I still enjoy these. I have a more critical eye because I've become a high muckety muck podcaster and Mm -hmm. apparently I know everything or something. I don't know. Right. Is that how it works? Yeah. Once we know and we, once we start apparently talking into a microphone instead of to our wives, uh, (laughs) we, um, in fact, it's really funny. I mentioned that my wife now has a phrase when I'm talking about Superman. She says, you know, you might want to save that for the show. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a smart, well, you're you're a smart woman. Yeah. Haven't gotten to meet you back in uh, October. Uh, yeah, I got that sense. No, yeah. uh, you know there are things that I'm critical about. There are things that I can look at now and say, well, I can see why people had a problem with that. And more importantly, because we've had 75 origins in the past two years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this to me it's special. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not as special as it once was. Correct. I understand that. Because it's not the official origin anymore. It's right. not, but right. it is my favorite origin. Mm-hmm. I will always look at this, uh, you know, and I've read Birthright, and I've read Secret Origin, and I've read Earth One, and I've seen Man of Steel, and I've watched Smallville. You know, I, 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 I've read the new 50. And nothing will mean as much to me as a Superman fan than, than these first three issues in this miniseries as a whole. Understand. I can totally understand. You and I are in the exact same spot, just 15 years or so uh, separated. But I don't have a problem. Those little minor details, uh, but I still would like to see the baby. I think those things are important. But overall, you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. I can appreciate him. I can enjoy his stories. I can now enjoy John Byrne's art much more than I used to. That makes me so happy. You know, my dislike of his artwork went right along with the dislike of his original origin story. That almost at the mention of John Byrne's name, I would have this thought bubble that said the killer of Superman. <laughs> and that's not true at all. That is, it, it's kind of the thing that I, I, I think that I've, I've been of the opinion, and, and, and don't hit me too much for this, that... 
I used to not like Kurt Swan's artwork. And over the past decade and a half, I have really grown to appreciate what he brought to that character. Uh, I almost like him drawing the more mundane stuff than the more mm-hmm. fantastical stuff. Because mm-hmm. I think that's where his heart was. As I a- think that's where his emotion comes yeah. through, is in the 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 story, the emotion, the, well, almost I'm, the talking head episodes. Well, I'm also talking, I'm also talking in terms of he looked, it looked better when he was drawing a metropolis street corner than a Kryptonian cityscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Wayne Boring did great Krypton. Oh yeah. God. <laughs> so, Loved Wayne Boring's Krypton. While I appreciate his artwork, I don't think it was what audiences in the early eighties were really looking for. The, the, the artists that were coming up at that time, Walt Simonson, George Perez, Frank Miller, John Byrne, uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, that they were the ones that were really like getting the newer readers going. And I think one of the mistakes of early 80s Superman is not finding that new artist to really come in and jazz them up artistically. Because you jazz them up artistically people will be more likely to stick around for what Carrie Bates was doing. And to be fair, there were some stories there. Marv Wolfman's pre-crisis run is excellent. It is terrific. It, it, it breaks <laughs> it, and it, it, it tries to, it tries new things mm-hmm. uh, with the character. It broke up wonder uh, Superman and Lois Lane for a little while there. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately for every, it was almost like the silver age for every story like that. There was five throws. And if you try to read like the last year of Superman in action comics before the revamp, yeah, after the crisis, it's like let's let's crank out the inventory stories that we've had for years because we need to yeah. get rid of them. Basically, they basically brought John Byrne and the new artists in for the very same reason they brought Kurt Swan in originally. Mm-hmm. Kurt Swan was brought in because he drew a more realistic-looking Superman than anybody that had come before him. Wayne Boring, as much as I love Wayne Boring, I mean love Wayne Boring, because he was really my first, that was my first comic book Superman artwork, was Wayne Boring and Al Plastino. And I loved Wayne Boring. But the first time I saw uh, a Kurt Swan Superman, and I'm trying to remember when exactly that is. And you look back at the comics, and I think it was an early Jimmy Olsen comic. Probably. Where I look at it, and all of a sudden it looked real to me. It looked like, it looked real. I don't know there, another way to say it. It just looked real. All of a sudden, Wayne Boring and Al Plastino, and I didn't even know their names in those days, but they looked like cartoons compared to Superman drawn by Kurt Swan. Kurt Swan looked real. I mean, he was the main Superman artist for almost 30 years. So your generation looks at John Byrne and says that, no, 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 that's Superman. John Byrne, there he is right there. And there are people that looked at Gary Frank's Superman and to them that's Superman. And there are people right now that might be looking, you know, might be getting into the John Romita Jr. Superman and thinking, or Rags Morales, even though he was very insulting to Superman as a character in every interview I ever saw him in. And boy, did that tick me off like every time I read it. Um, So I look forward to the next three issues and 
Not to put too abrupt ending on this, dear listener. Michael, what do you say we pick up the next three issues over at Views? I'm good for that. So in an uh, upcoming episode of Views from the Long Box, we will be finishing up our conversation about Man of Steel. How's that for professional sounding? That sounded like we planned it, didn't it? (laughs) Michael, thank you very much. Okay, there you have it. The first three issues in this six-issue miniseries from John Byrne called The Man of Steel. What a blast. It is so great being able to talk to Michael Bailey about this particular era of Superman. So if you want to hear the next part of this, part two, issues four, five, and six, you need to go over now to Michael Bailey's Views from the Long Box. And, you know, things work out for the best. Things always work out like they're supposed to, I guess. It's kind of cool because now putting it out at this particular time, we are in 2016. And the miniseries came out in 1986. That's right. It's been 30 years. So we're having a 30-year anniversary of the John Byrne miniseries, Man of Steel. But for now, thank you for sticking around. Thanks for listening to all of it. I hope you enjoyed it. And check out the rest of it from Views from the Long Box with Michael Bailey, fortressofbailytude.com. What a great name for a, a, a website and his blog, thefortressofbailytude.com. That's where you'll find everything you need to know about Michael Bailey and all of the other shows he participates on including views from the long box. You've been listening to the Superman Forever radio podcast. My name is Bob Fisher. Superman is based on the original character appearing in Superman magazine and action comics. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. The Superman Forever radio podcast is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, presented by the Superman homepage. <laughs>